Thrash It Out is sponsored by nobody at all because we are a completely independent and unbiased show with no sponsors or advertisers. Instead, we are funded directly by our listeners through Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to make your pledge and help us keep thrashing. This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston. And today we are listening to, uh, fitting for Halloween, Halloween's album Keeper of the Seven Keys, parts one and two, um, which was actually planned to be a double album, but the label wouldn't let them do that. So they released them as two albums one year after another. And it's our first double feature. Uh, it is. It is. It's our first. I mean, even if it had been a double album, it would be our first double album as well. Yeah. Um, that said, uh, you know, even though it's a double album, there's actually only uh, 17 tracks in total. And like that includes several one minute instrumentals. So it's not actually, you know, it's not that many more tracks than like the typo negative album that we right, did. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can totally see how this could have been a double album and worked just fine. Yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. Especially with both albums ending with, you know, a single, long, sort of prog-style epic track. But we'll we'll get into that when we talk about the albums. We sure um, will. But I'm really looking forward to this one, partly because obviously it's fitting, Halloween on Halloween. Um, also because I don't know how familiar you are with Halloween, um, uh, but also because these are, and this may surprise some people, but these are genuinely two of my favourite metal albums from the 80s i absolutely love them so uh yeah it's gonna be a good one i completely love this choice uh by you and in terms of being familiar with the band i was introduced to them through headbangers ball through mtv through i want out so right right i had and i bought keeper of the seven keys part two because of seeing them on mtv however i had much less familiarity with the first album so i'm really excited to dive into them and this is my wheelhouse of music right here like this is my you know anything during the 80s anything that that hits that rock through the thrash spectrum which i think this band actually hits a lot on Mm -hmm. on all over the place like is just right in my wheelhouse so i was psyched when you said that we were going to do these albums yeah, I figured this would be sort of up your alley. Oh, yeah. Because, um, yeah, it is, uh, you know, it's kind of, well, it, Halloween didn't invent European-style power metal, but they are generally regarded as the godfathers of the genre, um, you know, specifically European-style power metal. Like, like I say, not, that's not to say that it didn't exist, but these albums were such hits they were so popular right. especially within germany and europe uh and they were you know quite innovative in terms of power metal at the time as well you know that combination of speed and thrash with the sort of epic grandeur to get that you know what we now think of as traditional european power metal was you know they were the first band to really bring it all together and it was these two albums that did it so uh any metal fan in europe uh, you know, of a certain age, <laughs> regards these albums as sacred in some way. So, uh, so yeah, I, I figured that it would be also up your alley as well. So the European power metal is slightly different to American power metal, um, but it's close enough that I figured that you would be into it. Well, and these guys remind me in a way of Saxon. 
and not not necessarily right, right. musically, but they're a band that like over in the states maybe you didn't hear as much about as certainly as you would have heard over in Europe. However, when you go back and look at certain entries of theirs in their discography, they are very well deserving of their sort of uh, titles as legends or, you know, they're, they're yeah. being thought of as godfathers of the genre and stuff like that. And these two albums, regardless of anything else that Halloween has done, most definitely put them in that category when it comes to power metal. Um, and as we get through the tracks, you know, we can certainly talk about that, but absolutely, they, they're a band that if you don't know them, you should endeavor to learn more about them. And these two albums are like the perfect albums to really understand why Halloween was so important in the music scene back in the day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and in the development of, you know, right. what we now think of as sort of, you know, epic metal, power metal, symphonic metal, they all can trace some influence back to these albums. And in terms of Halloween's career, I don't think anybody... Even the most ardent Halloween fan w- wouldn't argue that these are basically their two best albums. You know, they've sure. never they've never bettered these. They didn't. I mean, uh, Keeper of the Seven Keys Part One was their second album. Uh, the first album was only kind of a, a mini album, anyway. Not that it doesn't count, but it was. You know, it had a different vocalist. Uh, it was all you know quite different. It was much more thrashy as well. Um, and then they made these two albums absolutely hit their pinnacle and you know they've never quite managed to hit it again since they went through a very fallow period they're a bit better now uh but uh yeah they've you know like i say these nobody would argue that these are their best albums so and i'm gonna you, recommend if you no, have on. i'm gonna recommend that if you have not listened to the queensrike episode of this podcast yet that following this episode you go back and listen to that because there are some very strong parallels not only musically between Queensryche and Halloween. However, there are some very clear parallels career-wise between Queensryche right. and, and Halloween. So, um, and I'll bring them up a few times today as we talk about these right. albums, but yeah. Uh, even down to uh, even down to a recent album trying to recapture that past glory. Without Halloween, a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, did an album recently called Keeper of the Seven Keys, The Legacy. I say recently, it was a few years ago, but yeah, and it was clearly... You know, that's never a good sign. <laughs> and right, did. and Queensryche did their Operation Mind Crime 2, which was horrendous right, compared yeah. to the original. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly, yeah. It did make me think of that. Um, I was thinking that, yeah, this is kind of my equivalent of your uh your queen's right love i you know in a way i mean there are differences and stuff but it's it's not far off yeah but i think the difference is that uh that i'm not generally into much more of this kind of music sure. than these albums you know this isn't a genre that i'm into in general but these albums in particular uh you know as i say i i just i genuinely absolutely love and i'm not blind to their flaws uh you know they are i know they're a bit cheesy i know that listening to them for the first time with modern ears is probably a bit jarring but you know i i didn't do that obviously i was listening to them not long after they were released sure so uh you know at that time they were still a little bit cheesy but you know (laughs) less so than now (laughs) yeah and and for me you know any of these bands that we listen to back in the day, they're part of our foundation, right? Of the of the type of music that we listen to, of right, what right. we even think of as music, as sort of the catalog that's in our head. And even though I was not as familiar with Halloween back in the day, like, but I did buy Keeper Part 2, um, they're part of that foundation for me. And I've always had a fondness for them, uh, both visually and musically. I mean, obviously, with, with the jack-o'-lantern mascot and the, you know, th- pretty much the best band name ever. Um, 
they're a band <laughs> that it's hard to they're not a they're not a band that you look at and like I don't like them. Like you might not be totally into their music, but they're they're not a band that is super divisive in terms of like oh I hate right, Halloween. Right. You don't hate nobody hates Halloween. You know what I mean? Like you you either like Halloween or you could take them or leave them. But nobody really hates Halloween. They're one of those bands that I kind of see as n- not really being anything but a positive contribution into the the sort of musical landscape because they're just not they're not divisive. You either like them or you could kind of take them or leave them. Right, a bit like Iron Maiden, who of course you know was such. I mean, it's obvious you know was such a huge influence on European metal in general. But on Halloween, you know, it's it's very clear to see that they were very heavily influenced by Maiden, especially in the early years. And yeah, Maiden, I think, are kind of similar band in that respect that same sort of like nobody hates iron maiden you may not like them like i'm not a huge maiden fan but i can't bring myself to hate them how could you possibly right you know (laughs) they're so inoffensive how could you possibly hate them (laughs) right and and basically if halloween had been a little more consistent and had been more popular in the states they would be mentioned more in the conversation with iron maiden because there's Mm. You know, Maiden is a very inconsistent band, in my personal opinion, as well, um, even though I'm, I'm a huge Maiden fan. So I see a lot of parallels there, too. I mean, not, not just musically, because those are easy to draw, but but also in uh, in sort of where Halloween just didn't gain the traction, you know, yeah. that Maiden did. But they're not that far off. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a shame. Um, anyway, uh, we've completely skipped over follow-up, so let me just quickly, uh, firstly, welcome new patrons since our last episode. Uh, we have three new patrons, thank you. That is Ron Carlton, Dave Kelly, and Russell Madalozzo. I hope I've pronounced your last name correctly, Russell. Uh, thank you very much, all of you, and uh, we'll remind everybody else listening, if you're not a Patreon yet and you want to help support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to uh support us and help us keep thrashing uh and of course um there's the facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out if you want to uh chat to us on facebook and chat to other listeners of the show it's a a fun fun little community it absolutely is and we got a ton of feedback about the exodus episode of this we did yeah (laughs) Uh, just an absolute ton i tried to pare it down a little bit but uh i'm gonna just read a few comments here because that was a uh it was a very well received episode, and and Exodus is a band that's a little bit more divisive. And so, just a, a quick sampling of some of the comments. Dan said, "Haven't listened to the episode yet, but I'm I'm listening to the album in prep. The riffs are awesome, and the tone is epic. I want whoever mixed or produced this to take a pass on the new Metallica album." Uh, <laughs> He said, but then the vocals start and it sounds like Cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch really got into Guar when he was 12. I'm immediately pulled out of the groove. So uh, I think that is, that's one side of the spectrum of people who uh, listen to that record. Uh, Dijon said, what a pick, beast of a record. And I'm really glad you both enjoyed it and gave them the praise they deserve. I must admit, I have not heard this record before, but for the last month, it is uh, an everyday ritual. He said, thank you, Brian. Now it's time to dig into all they put out between Impact is Imminent and Blood In, Blood Out. So there you go. That's kind of the other side of the spectrum right, there. Right. Uh, Jack said, you guys were totally right about the production and mix on this album as a bass player. I appreciate when you can actually hear it in metal. I uh, said, but I, like Anthony, simply can't get down with Sousa's vocals. Also, because you guys keep mentioning Testament, I finally checked them out and I'm really enjoying them. Hey. Stay tuned for more Testament. You, you, you know that's coming yeah, in the future. Yeah. Uh, Kenneth said, I mean, I didn't think this still existed. This is a perfectly produced thrash metal album by one of the old school bands. Unlike some of the original groups, it doesn't sound at all tired. This could be a bunch of 20-year-olds banging this out, and I wouldn't be surprised that a band going this long can still sound so vital is amazing. 
Absolutely, 100% agree with that. That was, I mean, I hope that came across in the episode that one of the things that really attracted me to the album was just that, yeah, it's so, it was so energetic. There was no, you know, as, as he said, yeah, no science, it, nothing sounded tired or like they were going through the motions. You know, they sounded like a really hungry band. Yeah, they didn't. They do not take their foot off the gas pedal on that album at all. He said, uh, on another note, I think one of the reasons Exodus and Overkill never took off like the Big Four did might be down to the vocals, which I think is a is a. It's certainly a case you can make. It, it is, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's true because look at you know Hetfield's vocals on Kill 'Em All aren't that far off, frankly. Sure. <laughs> um, you know, and Mustaine's vocals, I've long had a problem with. Um, but yeah, it's. Who can say? It's it's impossible to say, isn't it? Yeah, I think on the grading scale, though, I think where you could probably put Sousa and uh, and Bobby Blitz. I mean, we'll talk about Overkill at some point too, and and certainly I think he falls into that category. Although I think he's a little smoother than Sousa is, particularly on that album. Uh, Greg said, "I approached this with some trepidation. I can remember hating the vocals on Exodus albums in years gone past, and hearing that Sousa was back for this album did not fill me with hope." The music is great. The guitar is totally shredworthy. I really love the mix. Everything can be heard. The drums, while forward, are not overpowering, and the bass isn't lost. He said, take note, Lars Metallica. This is the way to go. Uh, however, I just can't listen to Sousa for more than a couple of songs before switching it off. He really grates, and believe me, I've tried to listen to this album straight through. Uh, John said, Kenneth hits the nail on the head for me. Great music, but the vocals are off. Don Cardenas, yeah. uh, surprising to no one. Uh, I have to say that the vocals make this band super difficult for me to enjoy. Um, Phil said another fantastic episode and the more you guys do the more I realize I actually enjoy all the general talk more than the track by track review of the album don't stop doing that he said I agree this may be the best sounding thrash album ever I also agree with Anthony that I really don't like the vocals but Brian's assessment that this is the love child of Bon Scott and Brian Johnson uh, had me laughing out loud at my local coffee shop. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> uh, Powell said, Sousa isn't for me, uh, wh- which is a little odd considering I have no issue with Bon Scott at all, but I think that's because his vocals are more in line with ACDC's guitar tone, and he doesn't right. do the growly talk singing as much. Uh, Sousa never sounds more like a caricature than when he's talk singing. There are moments when he does kind of fade to the background, and I appreciate those. He said, I'd also like to thank Anthony for being the first native English speaker I've heard not completely butcher my name on first contact. (laughs) I do try. (laughs) Uh, Andrew said, what a corker. Heaviest album I've listened to in a while, and amazing to think of these guys, that these guys are in their 50s. Actually quite inspiring. Uh, he said, I don't have a problem with Sousa's vocals, but I did grow up with a bit of ACDC, so the Bon Scott vibe works fine for me. Uh, Dan said, great episode as always. It should be noted that Lee Altus, before joining uh, Die Krupps and Exodus, was a founding member of the Bay Area thrash band Heathen. They have released three albums and one episode, oh, and one EP, not episode, from uh, 1984 <laughs> to 2009. And according to their Wikipedia page, they are still active. So if you liked Lee Altus's guitar work on the Exodus album, you can check out Heathen, of which he was a founding member. Uh, and a couple awesome. more comments. Andy said, uh, okay, you, you've all said it ahead of me. Great record musically, excellent production, and it's all a little colored by the Hey, I'm a Goblin vocals. <laughs> he said... Uh, just hearing this guy scream makes my throat hurt, but clearly most of us seem to have enjoyed it, and I was almost completely unfamiliar with the band up until now, so I appreciate this nonetheless. 
And then Stewart said, always loved Exodus back in the day. Fabulous Disaster was a particular favorite, vocals included. But then, unlike Anthony, I love ACDC, particularly with Bon Scott. And I remember noticing the similarity on the cover of Overdose they did on Fabulous Disaster, which somebody linked in our Ah, Facebook group, if I'm not mistaken. He says, this album has the same sort of feel as those 80s albums, so I am loving it right now. So uh, there's more discussion on this album on the Facebook page, you know, Anthony mentioned before. But if you're not on the Facebook group... um, but you have Facebook, there's really no excuse. Like, jump in. There's a great community there, people having discussions on all kinds of albums all the time. The, the episode discussions are just one drop in the bucket of what is yeah, going yeah, on pretty much music daily. being posted and people post links to, you know, new videos when albums are coming out from bands they like and stuff. It's, yeah, it's not just about talking about the episodes and reactions to what we're talking about. There's a whole, you know... Uh, frankly, I've discovered bands. I think I mentioned oh, this totally. before on the show. I've discovered bands that I now like and listen to through people posting their stuff on the Facebook group. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, it's a complete extension of that concept of hanging out at the record store and talking to the people that are in there on any given day about what you're listening to and what they think you should check out and that kind of stuff. That vibe is definitely present on the Facebook page. And like Anthony, I have found new music to listen to through that page time and again. And so, yeah. and it's a very positive and, uh, and sort of, uh, nice place to hang out. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very positive vibe on the group. Yeah. It's all very friendly. Um, uh, actually following up on that episode, actually in my own notes, uh, I forgot it kind of just completely slipped my brain when we were talking about it, but, uh, the intro to that album being done by Dan, the automator, Oh yeah, uh, and I mentioned that he was a producer and a DJ. I forgot to mention, of course, what you will probably know him best for is he's the guy behind Handsome Boy Modeling School. Oh, uh, and also a spinoff of that called Lovage, which on which he collaborated with Mike Patton of uh, Faith No More, which I actually didn't know until I because it sort of came to me afterwards recording. I thought, oh wait a second, and looked up Handsome Boy Modeling School to double check it was him, and saw this reference to Mike Patton, and I was like, really? And yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's not Faith No More at all. It's um, Lovage is a real kind of like uh, faux Barry White lounge music kind of stuff with Mike Patton doing his best, hey, baby, kind of vocals, you know? Uh, very tongue-in-cheek, but very good if you like that sort of thing. Sounds like the Alex Skolnick trio uh, side project that Skolnick has from Testament where he plays like jazz, uh, very sort of right, slow right. tempo stuff, yeah. Yeah, similar sort of thing, yeah. Uh, so, yes, that's where... If you hadn't, if you didn't recognize the the name down the automator, you probably have heard of Hansel Boy Modeling School. And so, yeah, you know, there's the connection. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was a few episodes ago, when we did the Linkin Park episode, we uh, speculated that they were probably quite boring and disciplined on the road. You know, that you couldn't imagine stories of Linkin Park chucking TV sets out of hotel rooms and that sort of thing. Um, and I found a, a couple of making of videos, presumably from, you know, sort of things that were packaged on DVDs of their sure. live shows or video clips. I don't know. Um, I, on YouTube, uh, the making of Meteora and then of Living Things, which was produced by Rick Rubin, actually. Um, and and we were right, basically. <laughs> I mean, these albums, these videos rather are focused on making the albums rather than on the road, but you can just tell like they are so, so businesslike. So, I mean, not that they're not having fun, but they are so, so professional and businesslike. And the first one, make it Meteora was their second album, right? So they're making their sofa more album and you can just tell that they are completely, yeah, just everything is, 
uh, like I say, business-like and professional and nobody's having tantrums. Nobody isn't speaking to another member of the band. Nobody rolls up drunk to do their drum parts. You know what I mean? It's, right. It's just completely you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, these guys were serious, like, right from the off. They were 100% like, no screwing around. You know, this is what we're going to do. Um, but, what? Uh, I mean, which in its, they're, you know, interesting uh, videos in and of themselves. And it was amusing that that kind of, like I say, sort of confirmed what we speculated. But it occurred to me, and we've talked a little bit about this before, it occurred to me that this is a change we have seen in a lot of media, not just in music, uh, but we've talked about how, like, you know, bands these days have to do things like endorsements and sponsorships right. uh, and stuff just to make money because they're not making money on records. Uh, but one of the other things that you find with a lot of bands these days and with a lot of uh, people in all aspects of media is the new generation are much more savvy about contracts, the legal aspects, how not to get screwed by the record company or right. by a producer or whatever, you know, Learn because there are so many war stories from previous generations now. And I, we've seen, I've seen this myself in comics, you know, I benefited from this directly myself from the generations before me talking about how they got screwed by publishers and bad contracts and stuff and you know that's influenced how i now conduct myself and the sort of contracts that i will or won't sign in comics because yeah you learn from those experiences and i think i think most people by now maybe not casual fans but most people with a serious interest in music know by now that traditional record deals are often shit um and i think that's really made a difference in the the newer generations of bands coming through where they they won't settle for a shit contract. They're like, well, what's the point? You know, nobody's buying the records anyway. We're only going to make our money off of live shows, so why would I sign a terrible deal? And I think what they're looking to get out of it has changed over the years too, right? Because, you know, back in the day, certainly in the 80s and, and even into the mid-90s, you know, the idea of being a musician and the lifestyle that that brought along with it was woven into almost every song. You know, back in the day, it was a whole genre of music here in yeah, the States. Yeah. When you look at hair metal and glam metal and, and the whole, you know, all the songs are about partying, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that kind of stuff. Um, that has changed in and of itself. So I think even people coming into the music business nowadays are looking to get something different out of it than maybe someone 20 or 30 years ago. And And as you said, I mean, I think people are more savvy. We're a much more we're in a much more entrepreneurial sort of state of mind now where I think people, I mean, we, ha we have to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like people that generate, there's a lot of people out there who are doing their own thing and, and sort of being their own boss, whether it's through Patreon or whether it's through, through other means and things like that. And so everybody has, I think the bar has been raised for the minimum amount of business knowledge that the average person has to have nowadays in order to be fairly successful. So I think that that's being carried into this kind of stuff as well. And, and you definitely see a much more savvy approach to what it means to be a musician nowadays and what it means to be able to make a living at this. Right, right. Well, and people treating it as, yeah, as being a, I'm a businessman. I'm, you know, I, yes, I'm, I'm making music, but I'm doing it as a businessman. And if I have to do something else or if I can do something else to, you know, further my brand or, you know, do more business or whatever, then yeah, you know, I'll expand into those areas. It is, as you say, it's very entrepreneurial now. And I think it has to be because, you know, digital media has kind of destroyed record sales. So the traditional ways of making money through the record industry and everybody acknowledges that. So 
Yeah, it's uh, as I say, it was just interesting thinking about that aspect of the business and seeing this. I mean, like I say, not so much the Living Things video because that's one of their later albums, but seeing Linkin Park on their second album for heaven after massive success as well. Let's not forget they've just had huge success, earned a shitload of money. You know, and now they're making their second album. How many bands, and they're all like, you know, in the sort of late teens or early 20s, how many bands have we seen in that situation in the past who've just completely imploded, you know, completely fucked everything up because they've suddenly got so much money and so much pressure from the record company to have another hit that they just completely collapse. And, you know, seeing a band who acknowledge that, and they do acknowledge it in the video, the pressure they're under and stuff, but they are just so disciplined about it that it doesn't you know they don't collapse it doesn't destroy them um and doesn't get to them too much i think is just kind of you know quite admirable quite remarkable really and now i think that's even more common because you know even back then in 2002 or whatever the situation was different it was already starting to deteriorate but it was better than it is now and now it's even worse so i think that's probably even more common to find now, I, yeah, I just, I just find this aspect of the industry really interesting as a freelancer myself, you know. Well, and the other thing that, that it makes me think about and really uh, appreciate more is how some of the older bands who did not come up in that environment have been able to adapt and still stick around. Because mm-hmm. these bands coming in with those skills nowadays or with that understanding nowadays, they sort of understand what the landscape is. When you look at bands like we talked about Saxon before we started recording today. Right. You look right. at a band like Saxon where, you know, Biff Byford is probably 66 years old right now. They are putting out a new album in 2017. They've been able to stick around all this time. Even bands like Megadeth, like like Metallica found that mainstream success and was able to um, sort of take it to the next level where they didn't really have to worry about that as much. But the rest of the big four, Anthrax, Slayer, Megadeth, they've had to figure out how to stay relevant, figure out how to uh, sort of keep themselves out there in people's mind share. And to be able to adapt to that changing landscape, especially when you came up in the era of the traditional record deal and everybody sort of, you know, fighting for 10 years to get that. And then that bringing some sort of measure of security like that has all completely changed now, as you said. Yeah. So to be able to weather that, and adapt to what the new landscape is now. That to me is fascinating to see these bands who have been able to still continue to exist and how they've changed their process to do that. There's some great videos on YouTube of um, Overkill recording their last album, White Devil Armory. And just there's a lot of that stuff now on, on YouTube nowadays, but just seeing what bands' processes look like now, even Testament, you know, what their what their process is now, what it means now to be a band and what their what their schedule looks like, what their relationships are like with each other, what the approach to making an album is, like all that kind of stuff uh, is kind of fascinating to see how it's evolved. It really is. Yeah, yeah. Um, One last thing before we get back onto Halloween. Uh, I posted this on the Facebook group as well, but I'll mention it on the episode uh, because I'm sure there are people listening who aren't on the Facebook. Um, Nothing to do with metal or uh, music even at all, but uh, if you are a listener and you want to meet me in person... I am, and if you're in the London area, I should emphasize that, uh, I am making an appearance and doing a signing for my next graphic novel, which is called The Coldest Winter at Gosh, uh, which is on number one Berwick Street in London, um, right down at the bottom there on the corner, uh, opposite the uh, tattoo and piercing place. Um, uh, On Friday, December 9th, starting at 7 p.m., uh, so, I mean, even if you're not into comics, you know, if you're listening to this and you're in that area, 
come along entries free you know it's not a it's not a ticketed party or anything but it is you know a launch event for the graphic novel uh and i will be there and you can come along and chat and uh meet me in person if you want to do that it'd be quite fun awesome all right so back to halloween um so personal sort of background as it were i discovered halloween through my friend john who is uh, always was one of the biggest Iron Maiden fans in our little sort of group of friends. Uh, and, you know, the reasons, comparisons are, are obvious. I don't actually know how he discovered Halloween, um, but I'm pretty sure that it was he who first played me some Halloween stuff. And I think it was Keeper Part 1, or it might have been Walls of Jericho, actually. Um, but as we, as I said before, they were obviously massively influenced by Maiden right from the start. Um, and... And I don't, I don't know, there was, like I say, I, I kind of, I could recognise that it was a little bit cheesy, you know, even at the time. But it was also, uh, not long after Keeper Parts 1 and 2 had come out, um, this would have been around 1989, yep. maybe 1990. But that's only two or three years after these albums had come out. So um, I think what really grabbed me, because I the, the mini album they did, Walls of Jericho, is good. And that's with uh, their original guitarist stroke singer Kai Hansen right who uh you know sort of did both in a you know Mustaine Hetfield whatever style um he he's an okay vocalist he's not great um you know but he's better than some uh and he's very he's got a very thrashy style you know you you listen to that album and it is a good album it's a, like i said it's a very much more a very much more a traditional thrash speed metal album than uh, the keeper albums, uh, and you, you know, and his vocals do suit that their earlier kind of music. Um, so yeah, I liked it well enough, but keeper, I think grabbed me honestly, because it was the, the fantasy concept album stuff. Like, you know, I've always loved concept albums, you know, I've been into prog rock since I was a kid anyway. Um, but you know, D and D and, you know, reading fantasy novels and there was all the mythological sort of trappings that came with it. You looked at the cover and immediately you're like, Whoa, okay. This is like a fantasy novel in a record. Um, it's yeah. I don't know that it kind of grabbed me. I was, cause I've always loved that idea. And frankly, I, I feel like I'm still kind of searching in some ways for that perfect D&D like concept album I still haven't quite found it <laughs> dude <laughs> you, key- you are so that is exactly how I feel about Halloween in general and the allure of these albums and and the last thing that you just said about still searching for it that's the biggest disappointment and I love these both of these albums but the biggest thing is you go into them expecting this epic concept album and they're right. not that but the, they're, they're not but no. <laughs> what the covers promise you, and the and what the covers sort of uh, tease is exactly that. And for me, I'm a D and D kid. Uh, you know, we've talked many times about uh, one of the things I loved about Umbral is you know the the D and D style mapping that you did for that particular project. Like, right, right. I am such a sucker for that stuff. And so for me, that was an immediate draw to this band after I had heard a song that I liked from them and went to check out their stuff at the local music store. All it took was the fantasy cover for me to be like, yep, that's right up my alley. That's exactly what I want. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, these albums are the closest thing that I have found uh, to that sort of, you know, that perfect ideal ideal D&D fantasy album, which I'm sure doesn't exist. You know, I'm sure any album that I would listen to, I'd find something about it that wasn't, you know, didn't quite fit. Um, But these are definitely the closest things 
that I've found to that kind of perfect ideal. Um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, the covers, you want to get a look at the covers, you know, like, oh, wow. You know, if They're you so are awesome. that, Still yeah, awesome. if you are that, that sort of geeky fantasy kid like us, then of course you're going to listen to it. You're like, oh my God. <laughs> I actually, uh, when I was at art college, I, <laughs> in illustration class, I painted a uh, wraparound CD case cover for Keeper Parts 1 and 2 for these two albums, um, like with a, a, a pumpkin-headed knight on horseback slaying Satan like while a volcano erupted in the background. There's, there's got to be like a, a Polaroid of that somewhere, right? Out somewhere? I, I don't think there is. I don't, because this is, I'm talking literally like, when was I at Art College? 91? I think 1990 or 1991. So, you know, it was long before things like digital cameras and stuff. I don't think there is uh, any evidence of it, unfortunately. But they basically uh, claimed that, like, you, you can't think about Halloween without thinking about Halloween now. If you're um, a metal right, fan, right. you know, I was playing uh, Overwatch on the Xbox One the other night, and some of the Halloween skins that they have for certain characters, there's one for a character called Reaper that looks like the Halloween mascot because he's wearing a jack-o'-lantern on his head. Like, it, it, that right. imagery is so iconic that even in the albums that I didn't buy of Halloween's, they're immediately recognizable. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and yeah. totally, you know, once that concept is branded in your mind it never goes away um i i should point out by the way that i was uh reprimanded for doing that in illustration class for, the, for doing that painting the, the the lecturer was not at all impressed <laughs> well that's unfortunate <laughs> not a metal fan you know uh she was like this is a bit childish isn't it i was like oh come on <laughs> and you're like but did you listen to i am alive right <laughs> oh man that was fun um so, yeah, so, the, uh, okay, bit of history of the band. Um, Halloween were formed in the mid-80s by the sort of classic original lineup, which was Kai Hansen, the guitarist and vocalist that I mentioned before, uh, Michael Weikath, uh, second guitarist, Marcus Grosskopf, bassist, and Ingo Schwichtenberg, uh, the drummer. And they signed with Noise, I think. Uh, and they released a mini EP and then the album Walls of Jericho. And if you buy Walls of Jericho today, you get that and the EP on a single release. You know, oh, that's if you buy cool. a CD or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is good, actually, because there's some really good tracks on that mini EP. And like I say, it's much more traditional thrash than, you know, than what we now think of as Halloween power metal, mainly because of because uh, Hansen was really, Kai Hansen is clearly a sort of traditional thrash guy and his vocals and, frankly, his musical you know, composition style right. is just much more traditional thrash. Uh, the songs are generally, you know, much faster as well. But there are some real classics on that album. Um, uh, I, I'm not just going to list tracks because they won't mean anything unless you already know them anyway. But go and listen to that album. There are some absolute classic, you know, uh, again, sort of early thrash. I mean, titles like Phantoms of Death and Heavy Metal is the Law. Come on, how can you resist that, you know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, those are those are classic song titles. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned about Kai Hansen. You can tell when he left the band after Keeper oh, yeah. of the Seven Keys Part 2, you can really see what he meant to the band when you remove yeah. that piece from from what they're doing. Well, I was thinking this is a comparison to your theory about Mustaine and Metallica, um, you know, which, but I think it's even more clear. Pronounced. Yeah. It's more, yeah. it's more pronounced like a, you know, Mustaine faithful like myself can certainly show some very clear places in Metallica sound where that changed. But absolutely. When you talk about, uh, whereas Mustaine, I think was one of the 
him and Burton to me were the two, you know, real core. And then Hetfield's rhythm writing is really good as well. But um, here, when you take Kai Hansen out of the equation, it completely changes the equation. Yeah, yeah, they they became you know almost a completely different band, um, and, and fans um, did not respond well to those well, next two albums. They really did not. Well, right, and part of that is to do with after that first album, the mini EP, and the first album, they then recruited Kai Hansen. The official line is that he was having difficulty singing and playing guitar at the same time. Uh huh. But considering that he now does that in his own band, Gamma Ray, which he formed after leaving Halloween, I think that's actually just a bit of a sort of face saving that was the pr spin yeah right and that actually he just knows that he's not the world's greatest vocalist Mm -hmm. uh and they recruited uh, a young literally 18 year old uh vocalist called michael kiska uh and then went into the studio and made the two keeper of the seven keys albums and you know anybody who's heard these albums or even heard kiska's solo stuff knows he is i mean he's a proper bruce dickinson air raid siren style vocalist he is amazing now his musical compositions and his sort of solo work since leaving halloween because uh, he left after you know not long after as well um a lot of it is not very metal at all uh and that's you know i think that was part of the problem after hansen left was that kiska became uh had had a lot more influence in the band and wrote a lot more of the songs right and frankly they just weren't very heavy um which is very uh, queen's when you uh, talk about uh, the history of really? Queensryche, the more influence that Jeff Tate had on that band as time went on, the less and less metal that band became. And that's oh, why they've seen a return to form with their new vocalist, because the band members who had been primarily responsible, at least some of them, for that harder sound are back to having more influence in the band. So that that is definitely right. uh, a Queensryche parallel right there. Well, and at one point, Kiska actually said, like in an interview in the sort of mid 2000s or something, that he didn't want to be associated with heavy metal anymore, that he didn't want people to think of heavy metal when they thought of him or heard his music. Uh, he seems to have gone back on that a bit now because he's actually. I, I wish now- we had a chart of all the people that said that when they left heavy metal because, like, it's, there, there's such a. Uh, it's like the circle of life, you know, it or, really or, the, is, isn't or it? the grief cycle following, you know, getting kicked out of a band or leaving a band is that. You know, they don't want to be heavy metal anymore. And then when they eventually reunite with the band and go on tour, uh, they, you know, they love heavy metal again. Right, right. Well, yeah, Kiska uh, has actually reunited with Kai Hansen and they have a side project uh, together called Unisonic, I think it is, Um, which is not, I mean, it's not very, it's not thrashy. You know, it's not that heavy, but it is, it's heavy enough. You know, it's sort of like, you know, heavy rock. Uh, right. heavy rock light metal kind of stuff um which i think but, as 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 music fans like as your audience gets older they're so much more forgiving of those sort of um experimental periods of yes, your music yes. like when the younger that we are the more we want you locked into that sound forever and then the older that we get the more that we'll allow you to sort of explore and so you right. know I, th- I think in some ways it's very organic and natural that if these bands do come back together if they do find their way back together they find that their audience is much more open to that as time goes on um ironically many of the bands that come back together come back together to capture their old sound <laughs> but you, you know right. I, I just think that as you get older you get more forgiving of that stuff yeah, no, absolutely true. Um, but so as a, all that aside, like, you know, Kiska is an amazing vocalist. And absolutely. what he brought to this band, and he does write a couple of songs uh, between these two albums, but what he brought just in terms of his vocal talent is astounding. 
um, you know, even if you are not a fan of the music, you have to be in awe of his vocals because they are just amazing. There was a point, do you remember when Bruce Dickinson left Iron Maiden in yes. the early 90s? Yep. Kiska was invited uh, to uh, to leave because he was still with Halloween at the time. He was invited to leave Halloween and uh, and go and become Maiden's new vocalist. And obviously, for one reason or another, that didn't happen, and they got Blaze Bailey. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what how different things would be if Kiska had gone and sung in Iron Maiden? Well, um, and that would have been a, a truly like a you know another Queensrÿche parallel because the guy Todd Latour, who is the singer of Queensrÿche now, is so much in the vein of Jeff Tate. And when you have a vocalist uh, right. that's able to come in, or or um, you know the guy who sings for Journey now, or you can think of some bands like over the years that have brought in a vocalist that is almost you know the guy that they replaced, almost a sound alike. Like, yeah, yeah, almost yeah. a sound alike. But yeah, who knows if Bruce Dickinson would have ever come back because they exactly. would have had a vocalist that could do everything that Bruce Dickinson did. Well, and that I think fans would have liked more. I mean, you know, to a certain extent, there were there's a certain segment of Maiden fandom that was never going to be happy that Bruce wasn't the vocalist. Sure, but I think there's also a proportion of those fans who would have grumbled but wouldn't have just completely rejected the band if Kiska had been the vocalist rather than Blaze Bailey, you know, if he'd been the replacement. Right, I one think or two they albums have, in, they would have been fine. Right, I think they would have lost a lot fewer of those fans uh, if they'd had somebody like Kiska come in. Because, I mean, Blaze Bailey's a great vocalist, but a very, very different style to uh, to Bruce Dickinson. So, yeah, I mean, you know, this is all speculation again, but it's interesting to to wonder what if. I actually didn't know that he'd been offered that job until I started doing research for this episode, and I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So, uh, so, yeah, so we'll just skip on a bit. So they recorded the two Keeper albums, which obviously we'll talk about more fully shortly. Uh, but then Halloween hit legal problems with their record company. I am still... There's because Halloween aren't that big a band. To the best of my knowledge, there is no sort of definitive biographical history that's ever been written of them. It's all kind of oral history and just piecing things together from interviews. So I'm not a hundred percent clear on exactly what happened. But it, it was something about them signing separately to Noise UK without telling Noise Germany or something like that, and Noise Germany got pissed off. And I don't know, something that just sounds really weird. But it prevented them from releasing anything for a while, as these disputes so often do. Um, and so it was several years after Keeper Part 2 before they released their next album, um, during which time, yeah, Hansen left and formed Gamma Ray, um, which I don't know how many how many people know Gamma Ray. It's much more of a sort of power pop thrash outfit uh, than than Halloween. I love actually the first Gamma Ray album, um, but even that is an evolution from classic Halloween. And so you can tell that you know even if Hanson had stayed with the band, they clearly would have evolved into right. something else uh, because even his solo stuff, where you'd think, well, okay, now he can do whatever he likes, and he literally wrote every song on that first Gamma Ray album. But I just want to pick up on one of the things that you said about how there's no definitive sort of uh, biography out there. This is one of the harder bands, I think, to research because I also looked for interviews and articles and stuff like that. And for a band that sold 8 million albums that has 15 studio albums and, and a bunch of live albums and everything else, like there's surprisingly little. 
They are shockingly under the radar, aren't they? It's unbelievable. Like most of the time when we do an episode of the show, like any band that we're talking about, I can pull up 15 interviews with every single member of the band and, and, you know, quotes even from back in the day. And I looked for interviews around the time of the Keeper albums, and there's just not a lot out there at all. Um, So it's interesting to, to see like they, you know, that the, that there's just not, there's not a great history out there of the band. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I mean, if anybody out there knows of, you know, uh, a sort of definitive or even semi-definitive history that they can point us to, please let us know, you know, post it on the Facebook group or email us. Uh, you can go to thrashedoutpodcast.com for our email uh, and Twitter contacts. And yeah, and we'll spread it around because I would actually love to read that. Oh, me too. Uh, if, considering how much, as I say, I love Halloween's basically first four albums, um, uh, or first three albums, I'm sorry, I should say, Uh I know so little about them comparatively. Dude, like um, case in point, you can't, you cannot find, or I couldn't find an article where any member of the band is even loosely explaining the concepts behind Keeper of the Seven Keys. Like, right. <laughs> just, the, 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 you, you know, now granted, we talked about how this isn't really a concept album, even though that's kind of what it teases, but even the songs that you could forge connections between, I could not find one interview or one definitive article that was basically saying here is the story of these albums or here is the story of these handful of songs that connect together between these albums and here's what the band members have to say about it like it is it's kind of baffling how little information there is about there again for a band that sold eight plus million records yeah it's crazy um okay so you want to talk baffling so after kai hansen left uh something went really badly wrong like legal disputes aside something went really badly wrong in halloween and they just kind of lost it for a while uh first they released a record called pink bubbles go ape yes with a really like sort of art surreal art photographic cover it was very odd um it's an pink bubbles actually is not a bad record it's an okay rock and roll record but it's not a patch on the keeper stuff uh and it is quite a bit lighter in general and then After that, they released Chameleon, which is generally regarded by every Halloween fan as just the worst. I mean, it's not even a Halloween album to a lot of them. It's, uh, you know, it's that album that we don't talk about because it is, it's just bad. It's it's barely even rock music, let alone heavy metal in most places on the album. Uh, And even if you're not judging it as a rock album, it's still just not very good. Uh, it's, they're not very good songs. And most of that album was written by Michael Kieske, which I think, you know, says a lot. Um, and well, I remember, and you can see, and not to interrupt you, but you can see no, as you on. move from Keeper 1 into Keeper 2, like there are elements of Keeper 2 that start to show the cracks in the foundation a little yeah. bit, I think, in terms of tone. Um, you know, Keeper no, 2 is a, a much agree. sillier album and a much goofier album than you know, the first one is. And so you could kind of see if you remove certain pieces from the equation, how that would evolve. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it clearly did. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I don't remember it it's sort of in detail, so I can't quote bits of it, but I remember reading the Kerrang magazine review of Chameleon and, and I don't recall who actually wrote the review, but it was, they were just incredulous. They were like, how, how does a band in the span of a few years, go from Keeper of the Seven Keys to this. How does that happen? Again, um, Queensryche parallel. And and this was, Chameleon was released in 1993. Now, long-time listeners will know, 
1993, as far as I'm concerned, was pretty much the best year of heavy metal in history. This is the year that we got Chaos AD, Paradise Lost Icon, Bloody Kisses, Undertow, Turn Loose the Swans, Sound of White Noise, Heartwork, Individual Thought Patterns, Wolverine Blues, <laughs> so many good and really heavy albums, and then Chameleon. Halloween, one of the original thrash metal, you know, European thrash metal bands, uh, yeah, come out with a, an album that's literally got things like children's nursery rhymes and country music on it. I mean, for fuck's sake, what are right. you thinking? <laughs> it's like someone replaced the band with someone else and then put an album out under their name. It's just baffling, really baffling. Um, and yeah, I mean, as we said, it does seem that a lot of that was Kiska's influence, especially given his his solo work afterwards. But it wasn't just him, because, you know, even after... Uh, Kiska left. Since then, they have really struggled to recapture that sure. kind of energy and spirit of the Keeper albums. Uh, the only remaining original members are Michael Vikath, the second guitarist, who's now the first guitarist, and Marcus Groskopf, the bassist. They're the only remaining original members. Ingo Schwichtenberg was fired at the same time as uh, Michael Kiska, uh, and sadly, he committed suicide the the year the following year uh, after you know. A, many problems with drugs and depression um which is a great shame because he's such a fantastic drummer yep um uh kiska was replaced by andy derris um who is still with the band i believe uh they've had a bit of a revolving door of drummers and second guitarists as well since so but you know the two you've got two of the core members still in the band and yet they just haven't been able to release anything that has the same kind of like i said like energy and spirit of the keeper albums so clearly you know you can't blame it all on michael kiska right and it's funny you mentioned the 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 lineup they have now they've had since 2005 and it's the longest lineup that they've had in the band um, but as you're talking again, I keep thinking about Queensrÿche because Queensrÿche it was the same thing when you took out Chris DeGarmo and you took out Jeff Tate, which were the lead singer and the lead guitar player. Um, you basically had the rhythm section that w- that was left in the band, and so it just as you talk about them, like the parallels to me just keep smacking me in the face in in terms of Queensrÿche. But uh, but yeah, it's well, just kind of fascinating. Talking about songwriting as well, if you look at the Keeper albums, the writing is dominated on these albums by Kai Hansen. Absolutely, um, yeah. Which is, like I say, that was like, you know, where when I was looking at it again and looking at the credits, I was like, oh yeah, Hansen really did write most of these albums. And that was when the thought about you your theory about Mustaine and Metallica <laughs> came to mind. Well, and um, his lead guitar work is just such the emotional core of both of of everything that these guys do. I mean, he, he really is an amazing guitar player. And so, Oh, he is. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and yeah. Vikath, if you look at the credits, Michael Vikath wrote, uh, he wrote a few songs across the albums, but most of them are not the heavy songs. Like the, what he wrote basically two heavy songs across two albums. Uh, now they are both really good songs. One of them is keeper of the seven keys itself, which is, fucking great um and the other is eagle fly free which is you know one of my favorite songs on these albums agreed uh but those are the only two heavy songs that he wrote out of i think five or six across the albums um and so you know i don't want to rag on the guy but you've got to you've got to point some fingers and say well clearly his heart's just not in that sort of thrashy power metal that halloween you know found their fame by by performing right 
Such a shame. So, um, oh, the last thing I wanted to mention before we get into the track by track was I have seen Halloween live once um, on Halloween in London uh, in, I think it was 1995. And I think it was at the Astoria 2, but honestly, it, it's a bit of a blur. Um, <laughs> it was it was years before I actually moved to London for a start. Uh, and this was shortly after Andy Derris had replaced Kiska uh, as the vocalist. Um, we had a great time. It was actually, it was, I mean, it wasn't a very big show at all. Um, it, you know, maybe like a crowd of like 300 people or something. Um, but we had a great time. It was a really, really good show. Uh, but I do regret not getting to to see them perform with Kiska. That's the one thing you know. I never saw Halloween perform with Kiska and I, or Kai Hansen, um, and uh, or indeed Ingo. And I do I do wish I had because I think that would have been something special. Yeah, I never got to see Halloween play, and they're they're a band that uh, that's a big regret for me. I would love to have seen them play live. Although I just watched one of their live performances, and in terms of stage presence and you know energy and stuff like that. They still look like they're bringing it in terms of that level of energy in the crowd and stuff like that. Right. Well, and they they are still a successful live band. So, uh, yeah, you know, they must be. And like I say, Andy Darius, you know, he's not like Michael Kiska, but he really was. And like I said, this was not a huge gig. This was maybe 300 people maximum. But he was, uh, you know, absolutely giving it 100%. He was treating it like it was a stadium gig, you know, really. Yeah. There was no holding back or kind of oh well it's only a small gig so I won't I won't really go for it no he really really went for it and that's part of what made it such and there's a kind good of, gig there's kind of like a pageantry and a and definitely showmanship to the way that Halloween sort of performs they remind me in a little bit I don't know why I always associate them with like Trans Siberian Orchestra which is more of an all star sort right. of seasonal um you know Christmas time band and stuff like that but they, I've always sort of put them in the same category in my head as a band that. Uh, the performance is everything. Right. Yeah, it, is, it really was. Um, here's, here's an indication of how good a gig it was. I mean, we turned up, like I say, none of us lived in London at the time. We turned up to the gig maybe three hours early, thinking, oh, you know, we'll like, you know, get sort of, you know, make sure that we're near the front of the queue. There was right. nobody else there. We were the only people there three hours wow. before the doors opened. Uh, so we and we we'd come down on the train from uh, from Birmingham. So we uh, just down the road was a pizza hut doing all you can eat for like seven pounds ninety nine or something. Um, and you know, none of us had any fucking money. So we were like, hey, let's go and get something to eat. Uh, so and <laughs> I mentioned this because I basically stuffed my face with pizza. I mean, I, I must have eaten, like, the equivalent of two whole pizzas uh-huh. uh, it, just because it was eat as much as you like. So, of course, I'm going to, you know, stuff You're myself. obligated to eat as much as you can. <laughs> exactly, yes. yeah. Um, so we did that, and then we went back to the gig, and we were still, there was still nobody else there. <laughs> so we stood in line for, like, you know, 90 minutes. Um, and, you know, a line formed behind us. And like I said, there were about 300 people there. Uh, and we went in the gig. We had a great time. Came out at the end of it. I was covered in sweat i mean from head to toe i was just dripping with sweat and and i was hungry i burned it all you worked off. it off yeah <laughs> yeah we we came out and we all went to the chippy down the road to get a bag of chips because we were uh, french fries because we were starving because we had been right down the front of the stage like you know thrashing and headbanging and moshing away and yeah we'd burned it all off so i think that's an indication of you know, we had a really good time. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Like, we talk so much about, you know, going to see live music on this show and, you know, trying to get out and, and seeing bands live. But, like, 
There was probably people at that show that night, maybe not a lot of them, who hadn't ever really been that familiar with Halloween, but then you see them live and you're like, oh, yeah, uh, I need to go and check these guys out. Like we, uh, you know, I had mentioned on the Facebook page, I had went to see um, Megadeth and Suicidal and Metal Church and and a couple other bands and I had taken my son and we met Mike Muir from Suicidal and we met uh, Mike Howe from Metal Church. Metal Church blew me away and that's a band that I wasn't that into back in the day but immediately became like 10 times more of a fan of walking out of that show. And, uh, and yeah, you, you can learn so much about a band by how they perform live. And, uh, and so I really would have loved to have seen Halloween back in the day because that, that was a band that I always just assumed was great live. Yeah. Well, and like I say, you know, even though it wasn't by any means the sort of classic lineup, uh, when I saw them, they absolutely were no question. All right, so uh, so it's finally time. Let us get to the albums themselves. Uh, and obviously we'll start with uh, Keeper of the Seven Keys Part 1 from 1987. Uh, original release had eight tracks. Um, and uh, I actually don't have a, a note of the final of the album length, but I think it's about, it's not long, it's about 40 minutes. Uh, um, let me look at it right now. It is... Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Cause they added in all the extra tracks on, uh, right. It's kind of difficult to tell cause there's so many, oh, there's been so many re-releases with bonus tracks and stuff. 36 yeah. minutes and 58 seconds. Is that all? Wow. Yep. Right. Yeah, it really is. But it's another one of those. We've talked about this before with those albums, like, you know, early Slayer albums and stuff where, yeah, it's short, but you don't mind because no. it is. It's so good. It just kind of like, you know, comes in, punches you in the face and runs out again. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. I wholeheartedly um, agree. So uh, it starts with track one, Initiation. It's a well. First of all, you get first of all you get a weird London Bridge is falling down. Yeah, on like keyboard synth horns, which I I've wondered if that's a reference to um, the opening of the Walls of Jericho album has a weird little sort of like horns blowing a tune and the sound of walls collapsing, and I have wondered if this is kind of meant to be a throwback to that. And they kind of have this, um, that just, just their approach to albums is kind of like, okay, we're all getting aboard the ride now. You know, we're all sort of, uh, we're all sort of gathering around because this is, we're about to go on this sort of journey together. And so they, they have all, almost this kind of, uh, I don't want to say silly, but it, it is this kind of lighthearted, like, is everybody ready to start sort of right. thing? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. It is it is a bit odd, but it it then uh, very quickly segues into this wonderful epic introduction Agreed. with these massive chords and big booming drums. I mean, it is exactly what you want from you know from what this album purports to be. It is really kind of like you know sort of soundtrack epic style music to again to sort of lead you into the album and go, okay, get ready. This is you know this is going to be big. Right. It gives you a good preview 
of what you're in for, which I think is good because we, we talk about so many of the albums that we talk about have these little intros to them. And a lot of times they're garbage. You know, they're, right. they're a lot just of times you're fun, like, why did you bother? Yeah. Right. Well, you needed to fill in out a minute and a half, you know, on the thing, but this one, <laughs> because it does get heavy and it does sort of lock you into now you are ready to hear the rest of this album. Yeah, you really are. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's I love it. Uh, once it gets past the London Bridge bit, right. um, and then yes, yeah, segues straight into track two. I'm alive. which is just, I it's mean, I, freaking I, amazing. I love it. I love this track so much. It is fast. It is loud. Ingo's drums are pounding. Marcus's bass is walking all over the place, especially during the, uh, the guitar solo stuff. I mean, um, before the episode went after you'd been listening to this, especially, I think after you'd started listening to part one, you mentioned about, uh, the, the bass playing on this. Oh, you know, it's incredible. We chatting. Yeah. Not only that, but it's, uh, and I think even in the second album, I think it's up farther in the mix, but you can absolutely feel the bass, you know, in this song, which again, for that particular era, bass was kind of the forgotten yeah, you know, instrument in those things. But here, a lot of the songs on this album are driven by the bass and, uh, and it's complex bass lines. And so right out of the gate here, you're like, oh, okay, the drums are amazing. The bass is amazing. The guitar is amazing. Like it's all... On this first song, it all comes together. It's a soaring, sort of uh, powerful, you know, uplifting kind of track, and everything is firing on all cylinders right out of the gate. And and so if you like, when you hear this first song, you're like, holy crap! You're buckling in for an experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, that, and that's uh, just again on the bass. You said yeah, complex bass lines. That's the thing. It's not just that the bass is up in the mix right. like say the that exodus album where you can hear the bass and you appreciate that it's not just that you can but it's also the fact that he's very much in the sort of cliff burton style of bass yes. playing actually in that he is not just playing root notes you know he is all over that fret right there's a lot of lead bass on this uh on this track he's a fantastic well and on these albums as a whole he's a fantastic bassist and you know and you can tell <laughs> right and um, it definitely like each individual element of their composition stands out which for me like as soon as you hear that on the first song of an album that's so reassuring you know because sign, then you don't have it? to yeah. worry about it anymore and then you're like okay these guys get it they're i'm going to be able to to dissect every piece of these songs and that that right. for me gets me very excited for the rest of the album yeah uh this uh this track also has the first example that you will hear of uh kiska's habit of singing one syllable per beat um he has this style and he still does this now he has this this is clearly just his style where he will sing 
uh, a phrase where every syllable is exactly on one beat. Yes. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a bit odd when you first hear it, but it, you, as I say, it's clearly his song because he does it, you know, everywhere. Um, but I think that was the first time I'd ever heard that when I heard this album. And I was like, that's really odd. <laughs> but it, it sort of marries the vocals to the guitar line in a way that is is just it it just merges them in a way that like you said is a little bit odd but at the same time like then they're inseparable right yeah well absolutely yeah and not just the guitars but the drums and the beat and yeah everything it's uh because he doesn't i mean on this track he does actually follow the guitar uh melody with like with his vocal notes as well but he doesn't always do that you know he's not always singing the same thing as the guitars playing when he does that um but he's always perfectly in sync with the drums and bass with the rhythm it's uh yeah you know as i say it's it's not bad at all it's just a bit weird the first time you hear it <laughs> no and he does the same thing on the first song of the next album as we'll talk about oh, when true, we get yes. to that too yeah there's <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of parallels between and it's hard to to not talk about you know how the albums compare to one another but there are some really strong parallels between the the two albums and just their their musical flow altogether and and the first two openers of these albums are very very similar, I think. That's While true. While they stand yeah, on their own, yeah. too. Like, like the, I'm not saying that they're clones of one another at all, but it's it's almost eerie how parallel these songs are to one another. Right, right. Well, I think it's... And I think that's probably a deliberate choice. Oh, sure. Um, you know, in the sort of the way of... Clearly, they have an idea of this is how you construct an album. This yep. is the order, you know, the ideal order for songs on an album. And I and love so, that. Let's find the songs to fit it. Yeah, it's not a bad thing at all. Um, I often joke about Paradise Lost uh, will always put their catchiest song as like song number two. It's You listen to almost all of their albums and song number two is the foot tapper. That's the one, you know, song number one is normally kind of a bit epic and gothic. Uh-huh. And then song number two, that's the foot tapping rocking track that will get you sort of like bobbing your head. It's, it, it, and I don't know whether it's deliberate or not, but they seem to do it on almost every album. So you kind of think after a while, you think that's got to be deliberate, hasn't it? That can't be an accident. (laughs) One of the things I love about this song is that when they get to the chorus, which is just him repeating, I'm alive, I'm alive, but singing, you know, you know, different, uh, different notes each time. It's, it's just like where the song completely opens up and you've got the drums at full blast. You've got the guitars at full blast, the bass at full blast. And he's just singing this soaring chorus over the top of it. And that it's just, uh, it's just a song that gets you pumped up. It really, it's triumphant. It, it's it totally, triumphant. That's a perfect word for it. It is. It's a, I keep going, but I, I wrote the word soaring down like 15 times on my notes of this, <laughs> of this album, but triumphant is, is very good. And that's really, um, Halloween goes to some very dark places, I think in a lot of these songs too, but there is this overall, uh, feeling that they're always bringing you to the place where it is triumphant. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a, it's a, which, you know, as we talk about the message of these albums, I had sent you a message the other day about, you know, one particular theory that I was kind of working on for it. But I do love that through line of this this sort of triumphant um, feel to it, because really, isn't that what power to me? That's one of the, the things that I love most about that element of power metal. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's generally positive. Yeah, as you say, it can go to some dark places, but, you know, ultimately it has a fairly sort of positive, optimistic and yes, triumphal kind of feeling. Right. Like you're going to rise to the occasion. You're going to meet this challenge and you're going to come out better for it on the other side. And that that sort of, um, I love that aspect of it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
No, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about it in quite that, those specific terms, but I think that's probably one of the reasons I like it, like it as well. It is, I mean, it is a real headbanger, this track. It is a proper, you know, you can really, and I have, you really can bang your head to this. Well, but the at the same too. time... No, right, right, exactly. The, the message is also kind of, you know, yeah, you're pumping your fists, but you're right. It is also a really sort of, uh, you know, you can overcome this adversity sort of message. Right. Like it's a couple of the lyrics here. You've got so much power inside. So cry it out, my friend. There's no use in hanging all around. You're a king. Can't you see your crown? Just that whole like, you know, you're you're meant for big things. You know, you're right. you're. You've got a lot of power inside this whole idea of like self-reliance and of, you know, being able to uh, fulfill your potential. Yeah. 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 It's uh, as I just, I love it. Uh, And, and I also love the next track, which is a little time. And uh, there are many things I love about this track. Me too. One of them, one of them is just the first ten seconds. Oh, so uh, good! That that guitar intro, slightly out of time, and then you know, because you listen to it, and you're like, oh, that doesn't map quite to a regular beat. And then, of course, you know, it sort of clicks in and it does map to a regular yep. beat by you know changing slightly. And I, I just love that. I have been trying to recreate that feeling for the past 20 years in like various bits of Dude, music that I've written. <laughs> so, so Queensryche right there. Like that to me, um, as I said, I mentioned Queensryche a lot of times already, but go listen to The Warning from Queensryche and Rage for Order from Queensryche, both of which came out before these two albums. Uh, by a year or two, so much shared DNA between those two Queensryche albums, particularly The Warning. Uh, the Warning is almost like could be included with these two albums as a trilogy. Um, that's how cl- that's how much DNA they share, and this this wow. song really drove it home for me. Uh, okay, okay. Um, this you mentioned soaring uh, in your notes and in the last track. I think this track actually showcases Michael Kiska's vocals more than the previous track in a way, because it is more soaring. He can do more kind of impressive stuff. Like on the previous track, his vocals are great, but he is basically just kind of like you're doing this sort of the metal shout, you know, uh, whereas on a little time, he is really, you know, can take his time and go up and down the scales right. and stuff and really is like belting out those strong high notes. Um, so I think this is yeah a really good showcase for his vocals. Uh, again, the rhythm section, Ingo and Marcus, absolutely you know solid i mean they're solid throughout the whole thing but this is again a really good track for them and then yeah that chorus a little oh, it's time fantastic and then the guitars like that yeah. to me i'm such a sucker for that you could put that in any song ever <laughs> and that immediately is like a, a you know a fist pump moment for me 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and but here's the crazy thing: this track was written by Michael Kiska. Right. Uh, this is, in my opinion, the best Halloween song that he ever wrote. Uh, Certainly, know, there he ever wrote. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and there it is, like track three on the first album that he performed on. Like, talk about peaking early, not just the band, <laughs> right? But his entire tenure with them. <laughs> yeah. It's like the good news um, is, like, he's he he didn't pull any punches right out of the gate. Right, right, yeah. Just afterwards, um, but yeah, I, everything about this track, it's. Again, like, you know, fast and sort of raucous. Uh, and then you get that that lovely slow bit in the middle eight where everything kind of goes semi-acoustic and very atmospheric and what have you. Uh, and, you know, it's if you listen to it on headphones, everything's panning left and right in stereo. Right. Uh, you know, lovely little... T- and then it comes out of the middle eight with the alarm clock. The oh, old yeah. school bell alarm Which, clock. Like, <laughs> if that doesn't date this album... You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Like if that, but but I love that. Like to to me, like in in uh, in writing, you know, you'll hear a lot like, "Oh, don't date your stories by putting something in them that right, you know yeah. will immediately date them." I don't believe that at all. Like I I love that kind of stuff, and I love it in music as well because I and you hear that um, with a couple of the sci-fi elements in some of the songs on these albums as well. Oh yeah, yeah. I <laughs> love that. Like to me, that's that's what makes these albums special. Um, I don't want them to to feel like they could have been made yesterday. I want them to to feel like they were made in the time that they were made. And so I love that. Plus, again, you know, we talked about the message of the first song, the message of this one. You're looking at some of the lyrics. I hear you say that's the way of the world. Uh, no, hear what I say. I want to do so much in my way. And, the you know, the message of the song of like, we only have so much time in this world. Make the most of it. You know, yep. follow your dreams. Do the things that you want to do because life is short. Yeah, which is a message that uh, you know is on several songs actually throughout. Absolutely, these albums, and you know, and is a good one. Um, but I agree with you one hundred percent about the alarm clock sound. I love the fact that oh, it's great because I when I was listening to it, sort of you know making notes this time. I mean, I've I have, and I'm not exaggerating. You know, much like you with some of your favorite albums, I'm sure I have literally listened to these albums. I more than a hundred times. Sure. I can't even think how many hundreds of times I must have listened to these albums. Um, but it only occurred to me when I was sort of, you know, listening to them and making notes for the episode that I wonder how many people now, young people, would hear that and literally not know what it was. Right, like if they like, think it's not probably a fire alarm or something. Right, not associate that sound with an alarm clock. Right, or a school bell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, but it doesn't even sound like a school bell because it's too sort of, you know, the bell's too small and I don't know, yeah. I love right, it, and you know. for us, well, you immediately get that picture of the traditional alarm clock and the little hammer yep. going between the yep. two bells and you're like, yep. <laughs> yeah um but again yeah a great track i mean great like song. this whole the whole album is off to such a great start and then uh the sort of for me the midpoint m- sort of mid high point if you like of the album is uh, track four twilight of the gods
which is another song. I, I mean, spoiler alert, I love every song on this album, but I really do love this. This is another bass-driven rhythm, I feel like. Yeah. Um, and then you have that sci-fi effects that I just mentioned that are thrown in there, you know, the distorted voices and yeah. stuff. Super cool. Yeah, it's uh, this is another Kai Hansen written song, and and it is. I mean, this is the the sort of the D and D total epic style. Uh, you know, th- if that's what you're looking for, this is the track that the first track that delivers that on this album. Um, you know, and also this is something Hans- a theme that Hansen returns to, not just in Halloween, but like in Gamma Ray and stuff as well. Is uh, you know, nuclear apocalypse and the world being controlled by computers, the end right, of days, Skynet, yeah. Right, these are these are favorite topics of his. <laughs> right, building um, building technological false gods and then having them turn against us, and and they drop 2014 and 2016 in yes. the lyrics of this, uh, which is kind of interesting as well as we're reviewing this album in 2016. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, I have no idea who does the voice on that intro. It almost um, sounds like James Earl Jones, which I know uh, yeah. it can't be, but it almost uh, yeah. does. Yep, yeah, and I have always I have always maintained exactly that. It's like that is clearly somebody doing a James Earl Jones impersonation. Because right. there's no way, there's no way, there's no way that they actually him. got James Earl Jones to do that, you know? Unless <laughs> they did. Imagine that, that that would be one for the ages. <laughs> oh man. Um but I we've we've skipped past the intro. Like the very first it, this track just bursts in straight in with a good wailing guitar solo and the drums. Oh yeah pound in a way and i love that part of it as well there's no you know sort of gentle acoustic intro there's no bang straight in uh and yeah the whole track is just it, it sound musically it's epic the lyrics are you know sort of epic sort of the, you've got uh, one of the things too that I, that i haven't mentioned yet is just the there's a lot of harmonizing of guitars you know the the trading yes. off of solos and stuff like that like that stuff is all present here as well um and it's always done to perfection yeah, Halloween are or were anyway in this lineup were masters of the the tween guitar attack. Oh, I love um, it. Yeah, and the harmonizing the solos like literally both of them playing the same solo at the same time and stuff, and they were really really good at it. Um, yeah, and there's layers just, vocals too where you have yes. like um, you, you know uh, Michael Kiska who is singing, and then in the background, I can't tell if it's someone else or if it's him doing you know just sort of the choral. Uh, you know, flat background notes and stuff like that. But there's definitely, a, they, they play with that a lot too. Yeah, they do. Well, on, and on this track, they actually do have a choir. Um, and I don't know if it's a real choir or a synth choir. I'm not sure about that. But the, the just the fact that, yeah, you know, the, the, the choir kicks in during, I think it's during the middle eight, um, uh, just before the solo. Uh, and it is a great solo on this track as well. Oh, it's uh, awesome. One of my favorites on the whole album. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, as everybody who listens to the show knows, I am not the world's greatest guitar solo aficionado, you know. Um, but this is this is a great one, you know, and I feel confident saying to anybody, this is a great solo. <laughs> Even I can tell that for sure. Um, and they don't overstay their welcome with solos like this for a for a power no, metal band. You know, I listen to a lot of bands that overemphasize soloing and. There's a lot of solos on Halloween albums, but I never feel like they overdo it. They don't feel like right. they go on too long. They don't feel like they're unnecessary. They always fit the, especially on these two albums, they always fit the emotional tone of that particular song. Like the composition of every, pretty much every song on this entire album is just wonderful. It really is. Yeah. Um, I wonder actually if, 
if part of the reason that the solos don't overstay their welcome is because they do that constant handing off of solos back and forth between the two guitarists. Uh, it's, yeah, very, it's very Judas Priest. Right, right. And it's very unusual to find any song on either of these albums where there is only one guitarist playing a solo, you know, and doesn't hand it off to the other one before you then get back to the sort of the song proper, as it were. So maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's got something to do with it. Yeah, but gr- um, uh, great song, top to bottom. It really is. And uh, you get that lovely hanging note from Kiska at the end as well. Uh, it's just everything about this track. It's, but again, I love it. We are now four songs into the album and there is no discernible concept of this <laughs> no. album so far. You know no. what I mean? Like what we were sold on the cover of this album. Yeah. We were sold a lemon. Not yet come to pass. Yeah. So as you're listening to it, you're like, okay, when is the sword and sorcery part going to kick in? Like, I'm not, yeah. okay, now we're talking about robots. Cause that's cool. I like Terminator. That's cool. But when are we going to get to the whole sorcery D and D quest thing? Like where's, where's the guy in the hood with the keys and, you right. know, <laughs> and so, you know, the more I listen to these albums, the more like, I feel like y- you can sort of get yourself into the mindset of like, each song is like a window into a different world almost, you know what I mean? And so like, here's the world where the robots rebel against us. Like, okay, that's cool. So each song in itself is like a little, its own little concept. But yeah, if you're, if you're searching for that one through line to connect them all together, like I think, (laughs) I think there are like, and we'll talk about my theory after, but I think there are some um, concepts that tie together through these, but certainly a narrative is, is not something that ties together through all of these. Right. In terms of what we think of as a concept album. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely not. Yeah. Um, okay. So track five is, so after we've had these, like, you know, four epic, heavy, fast tracks, we get track five, a tale that wasn't right. But you can help This is the end Of a tale That wasn't right I won't have no sleep tonight To me, I, I really like this song, and I uh, I would retitle this song "A Better Hotel California." <laughs> I mean, it's the ballad, you know. It's the it's the ballad. You've got to have one, or you had to in those days, anyway. Um, it's written by Michael Vikath, wouldn't you know it? Um, it, it? It is catchy. As ballads go, it's not a bad song, and it is catchy. I often find myself singing along to it. Um, I just personally find it a bit of a letdown after. After those first four, oh yeah, it know, does not match the, epic, the energy and tempo. But as far as ballads go, like the, an, another song with amazing composition, the solo in this song is wonderful, and that um, is Michael Vikath. Yeah, yeah, just like perfectly timed, um, very emotional. Like 
And again, this song is basically about a broken heart. And so not particularly tied to robots that are killing us all. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think you I think I don't know that there's a better place to place this on the album. You know, right. if, if, if they were going to have a ballad. Have it, yeah. Yeah. If you're going to have it on the album, this is the place to put it. You're right. Right. You're ending side one with this and then we flip over, you know, to the next song. But uh, but yeah, a great song. But I can totally see how the the album could have done without a ballad and have been just fine. Right, yeah. I think this song is mainly, for me, it's mainly saved by Kiska's vocals, which are, again, like, I mean, you know, because he is such a good vocalist, ballads obviously really give him a chance right. to to belt it out and really show off what he can do. And he does. Oh, he without really a doubt. does on this track, yeah. It is fantastic vocal performance. And I think that really helps sort of elevate the song for me. Right. Totally agree. Uh, and then, so after the ballad, into track six, Future World. If you're up there all alone And you don't know where to go to Come and take a trip with me To Future World Which, to me, is a song that, while it's certainly far from the best song in the album, it is a song that will get stuck in your head like a commercial jingle, and you'll never be able to get it out again. Like, yep. <laughs> it is It is just, it's so sticky. And, of course, anytime I hear this song, I immediately think of Westworld and Future World, the two Michael Crichton, right. you know, yep. uh, story movies from the early 70s, and and the horrific vision of the cowboy which I think was Yul, was it Yul Brenner who played the cowboy in that? Yes, who, it was. Yeah, taking yeah. off of his face on the cover of that. Like I think of the VHS box art for both of those. Um, <laughs> so I, I'll never be able to separate that mental concept from this particular one. When really the song is about um, a future where we're all a little bit more enlightened and things are, you know, uh, in a much better place overall across the world. And this is a world that you can live in, but you have to make that happen because there's yeah. a lyric that says, you know, you'd say you'd like to stay but this is not your time. Go back and find your own way to future world. So basically go back and help make the world a better place because you, you know, you have to earn it in order to be able to live in this utopia. That's exactly it. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, it is the utopian vision. Yeah. Um, and yes, it's, I mean, you're right. Not the best track on the album. And I, I'm don't think many people would argue that it is, but you're right. It is really catchy. And, it, and the uh, rhythm is really, uh, it's a great, simple, the rhythm. riff, the, the yeah, opening great riff is riff. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and just great tempo. Like it is, it, it's a it's a good song, and it's very catchy, and and it will, it's like an earworm. It, it's going to get stuck in your head when you think of this particular album. Um, but to me, it's the vision that this song creates. That as a kid listening to it, 
this does tap into a little bit more of the whole D and D thing, and, and a little bit more. A of little, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just just the whole, um, you know, getting lost in a story, getting lost in an imaginary world, that kind of thing, like that. That taps right into it for me. Yeah, um, and then and, and you do. This is one of those songs with the weird middle eight, uh, where you've got all these strange uh, sound effects yeah. that are so so random. Yeah. <laughs> They really are. They're like, and they end. Although you haven't seen random until we get to the next album, then well, sure, yeah. But yes, (laughs) certainly for this album. I mean, uh, Halloween, as you've as you've pointed out, like they've they are a little bit lighthearted in places. They've always had humor in their songs. Again, like even you know, Walls of Jericho, there are like you know some humorous parts in. It's very Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, it's very Jack Skellington sort of um, sort of feel to their music. Like there, it can be dark and it can be serious and it can be very emotional. But there's always always this element of whimsy that creeps into uh, certainly the album, but many of the songs. Yeah, yeah, and I I've. My theory, my long-standing theory, is that all of these weird random sound effects in the middle of Future World are supposed to be uh, something like the process of making a clone, of making a person artificially, and that's why it ends with the child's laugh. Um, I have no idea if that's true. I'll it's go probably, with it. I like that it, theory. It probably isn't, but it's my theory. I've had it for years, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, and the thing, the cool thing is, like, as disappointed as we are that there's not, you know, this one narrative that's running through it. What I, what to me, um, much like a good story, makes this album something that you can continue to revisit is because it allows you to try and make those connections yourself. And and I think just based on what the cover is selling you, your brain is constantly trying to make those connections. So it sort of puts you in a headspace where every song that you listen to, you're trying to find a deeper meaning of. Right, right. It's like those experiments where you take three completely uh, unlinked, three completely separate random images, and you then you put them together like a comic strip, and people will draw meaning and inference right. from it e- e- even if there is none intended in the, you know when the images were created the human mind we love stories you know that's how we go about the world that's how we live our lives is through narrative and stories and so yeah you will always uh you know you will always look for meaning in something because you will just subconsciously assume that it's there. So as you say, you see that cover and you think, Oh, this is an album with a story to it. And so even if, even in tracks where it's kind of clearly not there, you're still trying to link it together somehow. (laughs) Even right now, as we talk about it, you know what I mean? Like that. And that's the cool thing about these albums is that, you know, 30 years later, you are still trying to put that story together, which to me just makes it like, infinitely re-listenable my god it is nearly 30 years isn't it yeah god, i hadn't re- i hadn't realized that because this was eight, this was like 87 so yeah we're 29 right. years yeah 87 and part two was 88 yeah jesus uh, all right so uh so well then before we get any older uh right. <laughs> track seven the final track on the album uh final you know proper track final on the proper album song, is yeah. of course halloween
the best 13 minute song I have ever heard. It, Hands right, down, I was gonna, without a shadow I was going to say, 13 minutes and incidentally, uh, Keeper of the Seven Keys on part two is also 13 minutes. Maybe the only 13 minute song that I thought should be 13 minutes. Because well, I, I'm, I'm generally unforgiving when it comes to songs of that are this long. You know what I mean? Right. Especially on a on a traditional uh, metal album or, or rock album or something like that. I'm not a huge fan of these 13-minute epics, but this freaking song is awesome. Well, and I think it helps, and you get the same thing again with the track, Keeper of the Seven Keys, on the next album, but I think it helps that it is made up of movements. It is, I mean, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's composed like a classical piece, but there are certainly elements there. You know, it, it has acts and movements. Oh, it totally to, has acts to, to move it. you yes. through the 13 minutes. And I think that, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, a 13 minute track on St. Anger, which is just the same riff being played over and over. Right, right. Over it's over not again. the Metallica song that someone got stuck on repeat and just keeps looping right. over and over and over again. This, <laughs> this song earns the cover of this album. Yes, this album could does. be this song, and I would be okay with a thirteen-minute album. That's how good this song is. <laughs> like, it really does. Like, th- this is the song that it pays off the entire everything that that cover was selling. Even though the story is completely different than the cover that you see on this album, but the idea that you are going to listen to this album and get a story and get an epic uh, sort of adventure that is paid off by this song. Yep, absolutely. Um, right from the intro. The intro totally. sounds like sounds like a horror movie soundtrack. You got that lovely atonal two note guitar, and then you know epic chords again, and the the rhythm starts to feels like it's crawling towards you, and it's building up speed with the drums, and then bang, you know, Ingo starts thrashing around, and ah, oh, it's just yeah, the the first like what is it thirty seconds, sixty seconds of this track alone are. A masterpiece. There's in... no less than two or three times in this song that I genuinely get the chills when I listen to this song. Like that that's right. how good this song is from start to finish. Yeah. It's uh it's like that intro as I say is a, like I was gonna say is a masterpiece in how to write that this kind of song. It's it's almost like a template, if you like, for writing this kind of epic song within the power metal right. genre, you know? I would agree. I would hold this song up as if you're gonna if you're going to take up 13 minutes of a record on a metal <laughs> this album, this is how you do it. <laughs> this you better you better follow this template, right? Because <laughs> I can't even I can't even think of one off the top of my head that even comes close to this song in terms of uh, an overly long sort of epic song on a metal album. I I, I really can't like yeah. like people th- uh, like Inagata Devita to me never been a fan of that song. Name any other epic song on a metal album that's this long. To me, like none of them even come close to this. I'm sure I could probably think of one or two, but not on power metal. That's the thing. I think it's, you know, this is kind of, I mean, power metal now has associations with prog, but I think a lot of that can be traced back to these two albums. You know, I think that that is something that grew out of these two albums. Um, And even so, yeah, you know, within that kind of, within those strictures, these are still... And this track especially is almost unrivaled. I mean, I most uh, seven minute songs don't earn their length. We talk about that all the time. <laughs> when you think about it, when we talk about uh, the songs that are 
that are six minutes long, seven minutes long. How many times in this show even have we been like, yeah, that you could have cut a minute off of that song. Right. You could have cut two yep. minutes off of that song and it would have been fine. This song is 13 minutes and 18 seconds long. And I could just you, listen to this song over and over it. again. No, it's freaking awesome. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and the funny thing is there's Charlie Brown references in this song. Like it's not, it's <laughs> yeah. not even like the stories that, epic. I mean, the, the sort of background story it, to, for what I take away from it is that basically on Halloween, the door to hell is opened and you have, uh, it, you know, in terms of this keeper of the seven key, you have sort of a chosen one who is, uh, to me, it implies chosen by God to sort of fight the darkness and save the world. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the background story in a couple of the verses. Then there's a references to Charlie Brown in there and the great pumpkin and all this kind of stuff. And so it's not even like within this one song, it sticks to one storyline. Um, <laughs> but musically, amazing. I mean, at it, the four really minute is. mark where they're saying, listen, now we're calling on you and there's magic in the air. I'm the one dooms in my hands. Now make your choice. Redeemer be enslaved. Like at the four minute mark, it gives me chills. Yeah. At the seven and a half minute mark where he sings, it's shining on me and yeah. it just drops out behind him and then kicks in with like epic, oh, so, so yeah. good. Like that to me at the seven and a half minute mark puts this song into legendary status because yeah. that, that like, at a point where most songs would be fading out at this point, this song gets an entirely new life at seven and a half minutes in and vocally and, and just musically. It just, it's a hair raising moment. Right, well, and that bit, the, yeah, the seven, 725, it's shining on me. That, that's one of the places where, that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand oh, up on this track. Me too. So good. And yeah, a fantastic solo. Um, from, who's that one by? Uh, oh, again, both of them. It's, it opens with Kai, then it's Mike, then the rhythm changes and it's Mike and then Kai and then Mike, and they're just handing off to one another, you know, over and over again. Yeah. It's, but just the um, way that, that, uh, solo just climbs like three times, right. Yeah. Right on that. note. Oh, so good. Just yeah. a, a it, ma- masterful composition. It's the whole thing musically is fantastic. Yeah. It's got some great chord changes, which really build up tension through the verse and the bridge up to the chorus. Uh, and again, kind of triumphant musically, you know, the it's Halloween uh, is really kind of, it goes up and you know, you've got this sort of, ah, bit like a scream, but really it is kind of, again, positive and triumphant, even though, you know, the story's about the battle of good versus evil, kind of, as you say. <laughs> My <laughs> one embarrassing confession about this song, and, and I have to say that the truth is a little bit disappointing, is that I always thought this song was saying Halloween, not Halloween. Oh, <laughs> I thought it was. I thought literally it was where the band got derived their name from, and no. so even singing along with it, I was. All, I had always sung Halloween, Halloween, and then uh, started well, we, writing notes on this, Ke- and I'm like, son of a bitch, it's Halloween, like that. It but was with a little Kiska's bit disappointing. Accent, totally, with Kiska's accent, you know, it does sound like he's saying Halloween, so you can sing that along, and it's fine. <laughs> I will probably continue to sing Halloween yeah. on this song because, like, because it also, like, in my head, lent the notion to like that Halloween was almost a different world. You know what I mean? Right, like that right. it was almost this other place. Um, and the only reference that I see in this album to to another place is uh, on Twilight of the Gods when they're saying Insania 2014, Insania 2016. And I don't even know if that's referring to a place or a frame of mind because obviously you've got right. insane there. But um, but yeah, I mean, you keep looking in this album for windows into these other worlds. And I always thought like Halloween was that one, you know. 
<laughs> but it's uh i mean there are lots of chord um uh, sorry riff changes as well in this track that's another reason that it doesn't feel as long as it is it doesn't get tired because the, the there are tempo changes oh so good there are not just tempo but timing style changes as well uh and yeah and lots and lots of different riffs like there's a bit um uh eight minutes eight minutes oh after that right you get the it's shining on me and you get the the solo and it's all kind of very very epic uh and then uh, a half a minute later at eight minutes it goes back into a fast chugging riff and it's a completely new riff yep it's it's like you know we haven't heard that in the song before um and that happens again at i think 11 uh, is it 10 minutes or oh, I don't even know, but I yeah, didn't write down the timestamps, but yeah, yeah, there's so I many, know. I mean, then you've got the viol the strings in the song and stuff like yeah. that, like just chasing the, you know, the, uh, the baseline and stuff like that. It's so freaking good. Well, and then when you get to, uh, the, towards the end where it slows down a bit and again, it's kind of menacing and he's singing the, I am the one dooms in my hands. That to me is the kind of, that's the cap that gives you the drama. Like, all through this song, this song is obviously very dramatic, but that right. is the bit, because that sort of feels like, as you say, that it ties into uh, the Keeper song on the next album, but also, you know, the cover a little bit, and, you know, it's, yeah, good versus evil and Satan tempting the hero and all that sort of stuff. And I think without that, the track wouldn't be as satisfying. I think that's a really important part of the track, because it feels like you're finally getting, you know, that kind of morsel of fantasy drama oh for sure like, uh that you've been promised you know right the guy becoming the chosen one yeah um and then that's followed as well by a very very traditional halloween harmony solo yeah where both guitars are going up and down the scales and again you'll hear that a lot in Halloween music, and especially in these two albums, but in Halloween in general, they do a lot of that sort of where the, the solo is actually just them sort of go, the, both guitars, twin guitars going up and down the scales somewhere, uh, you know, perfectly in time. That's a very, very quintessential Halloween solo sound. Yep. Um, and you even get time changes within the solos <laughs> in this track even within the solos you get like oh let's just have a time change yeah it, we'll it keep is playing a solo <laughs> it's like they treated this song as its own album you know what i mean yes, like, they, like yes. they were like don't worry about anything else on the album don't worry about anything that's come before don't worry about how this fits in with the other songs or whatever uh we want to do everything everything we want to accomplish within the song we're going to do and yep. they do that they really do. Uh, and talking about the Maiden influence, I don't know whether you'd agree with this, but I think that the, uh, not quite the very end, but, you know, you get the final chorus and you kind of expect them to go out on a big, ah, it's Halloween, you know, but, um, but instead it speeds up again. They go back into double time and they kind of race towards the finish with, yep. again, Marcus's bass going crazy. And that to me is a really... That's something that feels like how Maiden would treat this kind of track, you know, if they if they were right in this track. I agree with that, and I also think it it again is another way that it keeps the track from getting stale. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And it heads it uh, then gets to the end, and the end almost feels like a live track. Yeah, with the you know with the symbols crashing and like everything kind of da 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 da. Um, but then then it ends on. A suspended note. Yep. It doesn't even resolve that. I love that. Like, after all of that. A 13-minute song. Yeah. Yep. 
and then it ends on an up note and you're like, oh, wait a second. What? That's, I, I think that's quite brave, especially for 1987. Good Lord. Well, it certainly um, makes you want the second album. You know what I mean? Yes. Like it wants you, it, it makes you want the rest of the story. Right. Well, and so does, okay. So does track eight follow the sign. Now you've made your choice, follow the sign. Did you make your choice? You're the keeper of the seven keys. Uh, our only hope is your victory, so follow the sign. So follow so the certainly sign. Yeah, the, all, the beginning of the journey. Right, and all of those lyrics are kind of whispered anyway. You know, yeah. If you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't even hear them. But it's this yeah, lovely sort of uh, guitar solo, kind of almost mirroring uh the opening not quite but you know it's the same kind of feel uh it's just kai hansen like whittling around on the guitar um but it's really good i think and it's kind of cyclical and yet it points the way to the next album uh, yep. very very clearly you know follow the sign like literally but also i think musically it does as well and it's uh, it's a really good way to end this album or end this part of the the twin album as it were yep uh and that brings us to Keeper of the Seven Keys Part 2, which was released, as I say, should have been released at the same time, but was released a year later in 1988. Um, and uh, that is a much longer album, actually. Um, uh, I have got that one down. That is, the the original release was almost an hour long. It's 54 minutes and 33 seconds. Right. Which is, which is a solid 20 plus minutes longer than the first album. Right, right, because the and that's and there's only ten tracks, and one of those is another sort of like short guitar solo instrumental. Right. Um, and and Keeper of the Seven Keys again is thirteen minutes long. It's so it's not because there's loads and loads of more tracks or anything. It's just because the average song length is much longer on this album, um, and unfortunately not necessarily in a good way. So I would agree. That, yeah, let's get specific. So it opens with track one, Invitation. Which feels very much like a wedding procession, almost like a coronation ceremony type of thing. I think coronation more than wedding, yeah, because it's got a very sort of martial, yeah, like a, pro- drum beat like to a it. procession, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, but again, good, you know, sort of lead, come with us, we'll lead you in, you know, lead you into the album. Um, right. It's all. It reminds me going back to the first album, and, and I didn't mention this before, of like the orchestra tuning up, you know, and then the conductor <laughs> sort of tapping, you know, tapping three times to pull everybody together. I, I kind of. Their introductions feel a little bit like that to me. Like, hey, everybody pay attention, and then boom. Right, right, right. Not quite an overture, but uh, but getting there, yeah. Um, and again, just like the first track on the previous album, goes segues straight into track two, which is Eagle Fly Free. Some can say what's in the 
Which is a great song. And it really is, yeah. It's another real barnstormer to yep. set off the A album. soaring, great riff, just triumphant opening song, just like the last album. It, it Like, they did it again, you know, and that's where you look at these two albums together and to create a song that resonates like this at coming out of that introduction and to be able to do it again is pretty impressive. It really is, yeah. Uh, it's also another song that's got, um, uh, it starts kind of offbeat. Like the riff and the beat are, they, they work together, but they work together differently for about four bars. And then Ingo switches it, and suddenly it kind of becomes like, the, you know, the, how they sync up for the rest of the song, which is, again, a, a lovely little touch. I, I, I love little things like that that kind of, you know, just make you go, Whoa, what, that doesn't make sense. And then suddenly, you know, they switch it around and it does make sense. Um, and like you talked about before, the vocals are on each note you know what oh, i mean like yeah, that like yeah. they're the, the the tempo of which he sings is like right in line with the main riff yeah yeah absolutely and the, uh, like as i mentioned before this was track was written by uh, michael vikath who wrote a lot more songs on this album um and i think this and, and you know keeper are basically the best songs that he ever wrote uh-huh. um because this track is so good ingo ingo schwichtenberg is goes fucking berserk on this track <laughs> the bass line so- is amazing on this one too especially during the solo Yes, yes, yeah, right. Well, and every member gets a solo. Yes. This is one of those tracks where every member, even Marcus and Ingo, get solos. Right, everybody um, gets highlighted on this song. Yeah, yeah. But I, I this is uh, this is a sort of, um, how can I put it, a go-to track for people who don't realise how good of a drummer Ingo Schwichtenberg was. Like, this is the track right, you I can play point people. to this song, yep. Yeah, you can go listen. To, that is a fucking great drummer. You know what a tragedy that we we don't have him anymore. Because um, yeah. yeah, I the drums just propel this song from start to finish for me. I absolutely love it. Um, and can I before we move on to the next song? Can I just point out? I've mentioned this before. The sort of um, uh, bless them the way uh, European metal bands write lyrics. Uh, you know, and there a lot of them. And Halloween, I've heard Halloween speaking their English, they all speak English very, very well. But there are certain things that non-native English speakers will say that no native speaker would ever say. And the chorus, the very chorus of this song, in the sky, a mighty eagle doesn't care about what's illegal. I mean... (laughs) Yeah, right. No native English speaker would ever write those lyrics. And I love it. I oh, I love it too. I'm not knocking it at all. And I this, love it. The, it. the message in this song is much clearer than a lot of their other songs. I mean, nowadays, the, the air's polluted, ancient people persecuted. That's what mankind contributed to create a better time. Like, yes, just yes. like the, this one, this is a very straight ahead song. It really is, yeah, yeah. It's uh, and it's a very metal song in that. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, it, there's a there's a few songs like that actually on this album, which are specifically very kind of heavy metal attitude in the sense of just like your society is shit, and I want no part of it. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And and this track, yeah, is very much like that. So yeah, absolutely cracking track. Uh, and then that goes into track three. You always walk alone. Yeah, 
which is another very Queensryche song, I feel like. Oh, really? Well, yep. th- this was written by Kiska. Uh-huh. Which so um, like uh, and again I'm I'm seeing more parallels between uh between Kiska and Jeff Tate as we sort of dive deeper into these albums. So again, go listen to The Warning, go listen to Rage for Order. I think you'll hear a lot of that stuff in those albums. Right, right. I mean, I think the intro to this track kind of undersells it because the intro is not great at all. Uh but once the track gets going, it's pretty good. It's again, it's kind of surprisingly heavy considering that it was written by Kiska. Um and once again he sings in that one syllable per beat yep. style in in the chorus. Um uh but one of the things I like about this is in the middle eight you get a sort of key change. Uh and again Marcus walking up and down the fretboard on the bass. Um which is just Oh the bass not, is amazing nice on this song. Just it ama- is good, I mean it, isn't it is yeah. on every song but this album in particular like I feel like the bass is even further up in the mix in this album and some of these bass lines are just bonkers awesome yeah it kind of carries this song i think you know and i, I love the chorus know. of this song just the this sort of back and forth tempo feel to it like it's really good um i just i i i really really like the song yeah it's it's not my favorite but i i do like it as i say i just i could kind of live with chopping off the intro because i don't think that's very good at all but yeah the the main song i do like yeah um, uh, and that, right. Uh, I feel okay. like this song is a, is a, is an inspirational song too for creators. Cause one of the messages that I sort of take from this song is like making things as a way to keep yourself sane, like creating, yeah. creating art, creating music, creating, uh, artwork, writing that kind of stuff. Like, uh, and also creating things as being a key to another world. You know what I mean? Like, so that, and again, that might just be me attributing a deeper meaning to the song but i i feel like this is a song that really resonates with me as someone who likes to make things yeah no i can see that i can see that absolutely yeah um yeah it is a good message um and yeah and it's okay so we've had like two you know good fairly heavy tracks uh and then track four is rise and fall Which is heavy. It is definitely heavy. Uh, but is, yeah, you know, the first of Remember two- those sound effects that we talked about in the last yeah. album? Like, uh, and we talked about the whimsy and the silliness. Like, here is where these next two songs are where that just goes off the charts. Like, if this, yeah. was, if this was a thermometer, the top of the thermometer has just <laughs> shot off and shattered uh, because we have just went completely off the charts into Sillyville. 
Um, accompanied by a, a cheesy sound effect. <laughs> right, accompanied by fart noises and yeah. uh, cattle noises and all that other kind of stuff, which, which again, I get where this is where some people might get off the ride. But to me, especially if you've listened to the other album before, like you know that this is something that Halloween has within them. Um, this is a little bit more to the extreme in terms of the goofiness factor of it. But that cheese has always there, – there's always been a layer of cheese yep. there. It's just that sometimes there's extra cheese. And in this song <laughs> and the next song, there is extra cheese. Um, this is a deep dish. <laughs> this is a deep dish of cheese. But again, you know, uh, it, it's sort of um, – what, what was the song that it reminds me of uh, that Ozzy Osbourne did? Um, it's not Crazy Babies, but it's off No Rest for the Wicked. Um, the, the song about the politician getting caught with his pants down or something like that. But it, it, I'll remember the right. title. Oh, okay. Someone else will remember as they're listening to it. But but yeah, the price of fame, you know, the rise and fall of people that we um, put to celebrity status and that kind of stuff. And so yeah. – um, Which is not a bad subject no, to, you know, to write a song about. But the humor in it, in this song, is so, so teenage boy. It is, you know? but I love the chorus so much. This is one of my favorite – chorus is like just them singing together uh and the sort of chugging in the background like i i really love the rhythm of the song and the tempo of the song like the the subject matter is you know is played off as a bit silly and of course there are def- some very cheesy elements of this song but musically i really like this song i think musically it's definitely the better of the two comedy songs that make up the sort of middle of the album. I prefer this musically to the following song without a doubt. And this one has um, a great baseline too. It does, that's true. Yes. Uh but but lyrically yeah, I have, you know, problems with it. And I should point out, you know, again, I don't like to rag too much, but this track and the next track were both written music and lyrics by Mike Vikath. Yeah. Um because uh, like I say, he was uh, had a lot more involvement in this album than the first one, and and, and thematically, they certainly musically, thematically, um, on the goofiness level, they definitely are a pair of songs for sure. Oh, absolutely, are yeah. Um, so and well, and that next song that is track five, and that is Doctor Steen. Which is an odd pronunciation from As in Frankenstein. Right, right. Except that the way it's spelled in Germany, you would pronounce that as Stein. But they sing it as Stein. Yep. So it's really, I don't know, <laughs> very, very odd. So Dr. Maybe Frankenstein the- is basically responsible for politicians and rock stars. 
Yes, yep. yes. Uh, and and sexy nurses, apparently. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I mean, like I say, Rise and Fall, musically, I think, isn't too bad. Um, and lyrically, I think this one isn't too bad. I would agree. Uh, there's a few missteps, but overall, you know, it's pretty good. But the music in this one, I don't think does the band justice. No, it's all. actually too simplistic for them. You know, right. it's a song that you're, you're right. It's a song that, um, even if they're trying to be silly, it doesn't, it doesn't credit their level of musical prowess. It does them a bit of a disservice, especially if this is a random song that somebody hears off of this album and takes this as indicative of their sound. Right. Exactly. Cause it's really not at all, uh, or not for these two albums anyway. Right. It's, the, uh, it's too vanilla for them in terms of the, the, just the, everything about the musical side of the song. Right. Well, and it's kind of, even the music is oh. humorous. Like if 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 musical notes can be funny, <laughs> right? Then I think musically this is a very sort of you know comedy humorous composition. I do like the you know sort of gothicy organ interlude Halloweeny music. I was just going to mention that's the one thing I like musically on this yeah. is the church organ because it is so cheesy and so, I so do like fitting. It. It's very Phantom of the Opera. Right, it's it's so fitting for the track yep. that I that I do actually like it because like okay yeah well that's ridiculous but it really does actually fit with this track so you know well done <laughs> yep um and then it ends on that weird chord I don't know is it the chord from a day in the life is it a sample or is it just meant to sort of I remind us of it yeah I'm not actually sure but it's it's a bit odd anyway um. Uh, and then leads into track six, which is We Got the Right. You better believe what you do is a sin. It's not for nothing. You better believe for the troubles you have. One day is a day. Why don't you have yourself and do the best? Hold on the bones, pick up the losers. Why don't you stand up to say who you are? Just show the very queen's reiki song for sure uh oh, do you think so right okay. i do and well, very very bass driven again well and funnily enough written once again by kiska yeah so i think i think that's where we're seeing as we talk about it that's that's what's clicking for me is that the connection between kiska's approach and jeff tate's approach so i'm gonna have to delve more into that now that that yeah. feels like that's where that <laughs> that sort of connective tissue lies but uh but yeah but i like this song yeah, me too. I mean, it comes to something when you have to look to a Michael Kiska song to get you back on track yes. in a metal in a metal album. Yeah, well, um, I think what we're, we've identified to this part, right, is as we're into song six now of this album, is that there are certainly some good, very good songs on this album so far. In fact, at least one great song on this album so far, but it is not as consistent or right. tight as the album that we just listened to. It really isn't right. Flabby is is uh, unfortunately a good way to describe. Right. You're this starting album. to see the cracks um, in the foundation, whereas the last album is pretty much flawless. 
Yeah. Uh, you can tell on this track as well that you can tell that Kiska is into this one lyrically. I mean, he wrote the lyrics, but you can tell, I think, uh, his, it comes across in his performance, I think, of this track that you can really tell he is into this and he is, you know, these are lyrics that he believes in because he really belts it out and does a, an outstanding job. Um, and one of the, <laughs> one of the things that I love about this song is how many metal songs do you know that have swing? I know, right? This song, the rhythm is a swing rhythm. That's rare. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That is not at all what you expect, but they pull it off. They do pull it off. It's, uh, you know, again, talking about their sort of showing off their musical ability on the last track. I think this track does that, even though it's not that much more complex, but there are elements of it, like the fact that it's in a swing star, for heaven's sake, that I think actually are a much better showcase for their musical prowess and there's a lot of lyrics to this i mean some of their songs don't have a lot of lyrics as you go through it's like two verses and you know when you add the solos in and everything else but as you said it seems like he's really into this one um don't turn your head back to the wall don't close your eyes and wait for your fall you know in this time there's nothing to get for you you cannot really do what you want you're a child a prisoner in your own mind you're a victim of this hopeless time like just just that sort of struggle is something that um as you said, it feels like he's he's really emoting as he sings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, I love. Why don't you open your eyes to uncover all of these lies? Right. I I think you won't accept this. Go oppose with your fist. Fight for your rights. Right. I mean, you know, that's that's some pretty unambiguous lyrics, right there. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> um. So, uh, okay. So, yeah. I say that's that's good. And then that goes into uh track where we seven which is march of time Which I think is the most metal song on the album so far. Well, and this is written by music and lyrics by Kai Hansen. Yeah. Uh, which I think, you know, probably explains that. Which is interesting um, it, for it to come in at this point, because this is typically the part of the album where you dip. And we right, had that dip true. on, on yeah. tracks four and five, although it was less of a dip and more of sort of a diversion. Here on track seven, this is a this is a solid metal song right here. Yeah. We're back to the sort of epic prog thrash. Thank you very much, Kai. Um, I love the main riff in this one. Oh, I mean, yeah, that is a sure. proper thrash riff. That is really good. Um, and the, the chorus, I absolutely love the chorus on this song. Ingo's drums uh, during the chorus on this, just they get me every single time. There's something about 
his drumming on the chorus in this track that absolutely just connects with me. It's like a fist to the gut. I love it. And I like the lyrics to the song. Like there's uh, a couple lines, uh, never give up all the hope to lead a good life. Don't waste your given time to make things worse. You know, like don't, don't waste your time on this earth being part of the problem, you know, uh, try to, try to help make something better. Um, yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's uh, well, and you know, like we've said, that's a message that Halloween come return to in a few tracks. And Kai Hansen, I, I do seems think, like, like if, if there's a theme running through their music on both of these albums, it is, um, you know, things like life is short. Um, be someone who is a positive example. Um, follow your your instincts creatively. Help contribute to making the world a better place, you know, um, put in more than you take out that kind of stuff. Like, I, I feel like those are themes that run through a lot of their stuff. Yeah. And don't waste your time. Yeah. And, and life is short. Don't do not waste your time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say like, just a quick sort of, you know, let's just take a moment to think this year more than most in recent memory has really shown us how true that is. You know, oh, with all the people that have died, when you look at and then when you look at on a daily basis, you know, you fire up Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and you see all the time that people waste perseverating on the political bullshit that just takes over some people's lives. I mean, in in the amount of energy that people put into that, um, you know, constantly being focused on that and and the rhetoric and all that kind of stuff, like it's uh, there's a lot of examples out there of. of being sucked into that, but also of life being short. Yeah, absolutely. You know, time marches on, like they say here. Don't waste it. Don't bide your time. Don't put everything off until later. You know, it's the old saying, plan for tomorrow, but live for today. Yep. Um, and, you know, I've, this song has always connected with me in many ways, but one of those is that message in the lyrics. I, I really like and appreciate that message in the lyrics. You know, yes, time does march on. You can't do anything about it. You can't stop it. So just, you know, make good use of the time you've got. Right, because um, time doesn't give a shit that you spent so much time dwelling on this thing or that thing or that, you know, right. you, you, uh, you uh, perseverated on this or that. Like time, that matters. That doesn't matter at all to time. Well, and that's the line in the chorus that I love. Time marches on without us all. Right. Like, you know, it doesn't matter whether we're with it or not. Whatever we're doing, time is going to march on. Does not care. Right. Um, yeah, love that. Uh, one thing, just getting back to the song, musically, one thing I love about this is the um, the bit in the, towards the end, where you got the uh, the sort of slightly quieter bit where he's singing, please, please help me see the best way to be. Right. Um, and there's... There's something about the way he sings that and the way the guitars are played. It sounds very kind of desperate and urgent uh, and, you know, crashes straight back into the chorus. So, yeah, it's just I think that's a really nice part of the song that's kind of, you know, it's not flashy. But again, without it, I think the song wouldn't be as satisfying. I think it helps complete the song, you know? No, I agree with that. Uh, And, okay, right. And then track eight, I Want Out. Different things, but they all convince that they're the ones to see. 
which is basically the single song that is responsible for me even knowing who Halloween is. And um, well, not just you, but a lot of people. Oh, because sure. I didn't. I didn't actually know, but yeah, this song was a, a, not only a single. I mean, I knew that, but it was really, really heavily played on MTV in America, which I did not know. Yeah, when I think of uh, it, it, reminds me of another band that are nothing musically like this, but Killer Dwarfs, which is a Canadian um, sort of rock metal band, um, was another band that because of like one video, I discovered who they were. And so I can't say enough as we talk about a lot of these old school bands about how influential MTV and Headbangers Ball were in introducing me to music that I hadn't heard before. And I Want Out was a song that as soon as I heard, that song made me go out and buy this album. Right. It, it, and it is a fantastic song. I mean, this could be an album closer. Oh, this for song sure. is good enough and has the right feeling that you could end on this song and it would be, you'd be like, what a great way to finish an album, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things I love about this is in the second verse of the song, the, the riff gets even heavier. You know what I mean? Yes. So like it just progressively <laughs> builds as the song goes on. And um, it, it's a, you know, classic Halloween. It's soaring. It's, you know, it's in some ways triumphant as well about, you know, doing what you want, following your own dreams, following your own instincts, um, yeah. rebelling against the things that keep you down, that kind of stuff. Um, it's a very Halloween song. It's a real foot tapper as well. Oh, for it's, sure, yeah. yeah. It's no no surprise that this this has become an anthem for them, you know, at their live shows and stuff. And that is no surprise to me at all uh, because, yeah, it is a real rocking track with some great solos, really, really great solos in this. And also not surprising why it got heavy rotation even with the hair metal genre and everything else because it's a it's a sort of a crossover song it's a song that that kind of sits yeah, yeah. it sits on the rock and metal and power metal side of things like it's a, it's a song that you can throw in any of those playlists and it will work um yeah. and so it had heavy heavy rotation over here well and uh th- this was written uh, by music and lyrics for this by kai hansen um which you know kind of a explains why it's quite heavy, but also I think is a good. You're talking about that crossover, and I mentioned the that gamma ray is you know is not sort of traditional thrash, but is more kind of like pop power metal kind yeah. of stuff. And that's kind of I feel like this track is almost a blueprint, if you like, for you know when he went off to do gamma ray, and he's like, I'm going to write an album consisting of songs. That all sound like that. Sure. Um, and that's not literally true, but, you know, but, but it has that same kind of feel. You listen to, like I say, I really like that first Gamma Ray album. And, and it, it has some, you know, sort of tracks that do verge on pop more than, you know, pop rock more than metal. But it is, they're just such great songs that it's really worth a listen. And when we talk about how they sort of fit in, you know, the pantheon of, of what's considered to be like power metal legends or people who help form the sound and stuff like that. Like, like we talked about with, with, uh, you know, the 13 minute song before, uh, they are good at creating templates for how these types of songs should go. Um, Mm. when we talked about Halloween, like that is the, if you're going to write a 13 minute epic, that's the template for that. When you talk about, you know, I want out, that's another sort of template song. So they definitely have some songs where you could use as blueprints for entire bands, uh, and also particular types of songs. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And before we move on to uh, the next 13 minute song, I just want to mention, uh, towards the end when, uh, Kiska sings, leave me alone and he holds, the final note sings, leave me alone yep. and hold, holds that note. I have timed that 20 seconds. He holds that note for, 
And that is a proper belting high note. Oh, that for is, sure. That is an impressive, I mean, like I say, again, you know, that is a real kind of, if you want to show somebody how strong a vocalist he is, if you, you know, just sort of on purely on the basis of like, this man can really belt it and hold it. 20 seconds to hold that note. Holy crap. <laughs> well, and it's one of the things that makes that song resonate so much, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. His vocal performance on it is is really good, actually. Yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. a selling point for it. Like, again, you watch that video, you listen to that song, and you're like, I need to see and hear some more from these guys. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, and now let's get a lot more from them then, because the uh, final, again, sort of final proper track. Actually, no, it is the final track on this album, sorry, isn't it? Uh, is track nine, Keeper of the Seven Keys, another 13-minute track. We Misguided your path You can't throw a cross Without taking the rock Watch out for the seeds Of hatred and sin All us people Forget what we've been Our only hope shall victory Well, it is, except for the fact that the next song that we're going to talk about was originally the seventh song on the album. And when it was re-released, they bumped it to number 10. Um, that song, Save Us, was originally on number 7, and it was moved to number 10 on the remastered re-release. That's what that's according to, uh, to Wikipedia. You're right. No, you're absolutely right, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. See, right, I did have like you know the original of the or, or rather i had tapes from my friends yeah. <laughs> originals of these albums so yes actually now that you mention it yes yeah, save us was there in the middle which but i of don't course, know why now, they changed it but but we'll yeah. talk about that when we get to that but right but, right uh, and now of course i don't have that because you know i don't have a i don't even have a cassette player anymore right, let, alone, know, right? let, let alone the cassette itself so of course all these years since i've been listening to the remastered edition without even realizing it oh man so i mean keeper of the seven keys another 13 minute epic and a really solid song my you know my not that i have a problem with it but the the thing for me is that when you compare it to halloween it just doesn't hold up to me as good as that other one now i okay so halloween was written by kai hansen and keeper of the seven keys is written by mike vikath uh, and I know I rag on Vikath, and I have done in this show, but 
I fucking love this track. I love it so much. Uh, and I'm not going to say that it's better than Halloween, but I think they are both equally great because they're very different. They are very different songs. Halloween is a much more heavy metal song. It is a much more thrash song. Uh, it is less proggy and more thrash. This is much more of a sort of rock metal song and is way more proggy. Way well, more and, and this one than, has a better story than Halloween well, does. Is, it, it has a there is line. that. Yes. Yeah, there is that. That's true. But yeah, I, I, it's a bit like Alien and Aliens, right? You know, yeah, they are equally, both yeah. fucking great. Both fucking great, but they're so different. You can't really compare. That's them. true. I would agree with that. And and this is uh, this is again the song that pays off the cover of this album. Oh, uh, totally. Yeah, pays off the cover of both of the albums. Uh-huh. Absolutely. <laughs> you know. Yeah, really, um, because the the. Uh, the story for both albums is basically this song. This is the concept yeah. album that you've been waiting for. It's one song. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one 13-minute song at the end of right. uh, the second uh, record. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but it is great. It is great. I mean, it is it is so Michael Vygath. You've got this acoustic guitar to open it. You've got synthesizers. Uh, and then the epic chords come in with some, like, mythological lyrics and stuff. Um, but, yeah, I, I love it. Uh, I love... There's a sort of bit of swing in the bridge to the chorus where they sing our only hopes, your victory, uh-huh. uh, which again, like, you know, swing in a metal song, really. Um, the chorus is absolutely epic. You know, you're the keeper of the seven keys that lock up the seven seas. I mean, it's just, it's great. And then after they do that a couple of times, then comes all the prog stuff. Right. Uh, and, One of the things I love about, that's unusual, really unusual actually about this song, is that most of the the good versus evil battle is done musically. Like, there aren't that many lyrics left in the song, and what there are are kind of spaced out. They don't even Um, talk about all seven of the keys. They literally, uh, they talk about, uh, throw the first key into the sea of hate, second key into the sea of fear, uh, third key into the sea of senselessness, fourth key into the sea of greed, Fifth into the sea of ignorance, and right, I've, and then the sixth key is disease. Sixth key is disease. Yeah, so they, so they do mention all seven keys. It's just that some of them get short shrift. <laughs> but I, I love how most of this is done musically. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't rely on the lyrics. Like you've got solos and different movements, and it's almost as if each key gets its own little light motif. Right. Even if that light motif only lasts for ten seconds, right. it gets its own little section of music. Um, uh, and then actually you mentioned the sixth key disease, 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 my friend. Uh, I love that because that is so different to everything that's come before. Um, both musically and lyrically. Yes, it really is. Yeah. And then after that key, the way the music slows down into these solos with very little distortion and, and, and this is where I get completely pretentious, but when that bit kicks in, you can almost imagine Imagine the key arcing across the sky, uh-huh. like thrown off a clifftop, and in slow motion it tumbles end over end into the sea below, you know? Yeah. That, that's what I get from but that. I, and I think that's what it's meant to evoke. I don't think that's that's pretentious at all. I, like, I, I think this is the song where they're telling an epic tale. And so I think that clearly they, they're meaning to conjure those images in your head. 
I, I certainly hope so, because, yeah, that's always what I've got from it. Uh, and then the final key, at like an, eight and a half minutes into the song, the final key and Satan uh, sitting on the mountain with his high iron voice, whatever the hell that means. I know, <laughs> so high, like, you're right. <laughs> Euro lyrics like high iron voice. What does that even mean? But it's great because of what um, again, what it conjures in your head. Like oh, you're yeah. you're thinking, what does that sound like to me? Yeah, with his high iron voice causing sickness. Right. Um, just ah, uh, fantastic. And then um, uh, when he says, what is it? Uh, don't throw the key, or you will see dimensions cruel as they can be. For the longest time, like I say, I had. And a cassette tape recorded off of a friend's vinyl copy on my crappy stereo. Uh-huh. And for the longest time, I thought that he was saying, don't throw the key or you will see my vengeance cruel as they can be. Which and just assumed that it was sense. a bad translation. Yep. Well, but I assumed it was a bad translation. <laughs> but I still sing that. I know I've known the real lyrics for, you know, 20 years or whatever, but I still actually sing that sometimes because I think that sounds all right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like me singing Halloween on, on Halloween. Right. You know, that yeah. works for me. <laughs> Um, uh, and then again, right. So this is just like the hero facing off against Satan, Satan saying, don't throw the key. And the, uh, you know, the voice of the, the seer of vision saying to the hero, no, throw the key. And then he does throw the key. And this sort of final battle, the whole thing is musically, the, like the whole thing is just pieces of music it's basically two whole minutes of guitar solos by the time kiska starts singing again it's all over you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of the uh in big trouble in little china the battle between uh lo pan and egg shan when they're doing the the sorcery where they each throw the crystals and they're oh, playing yeah. you know the, where the where the uh the, the sort of uh source. like the video game bit. yeah exactly yeah like this the, the, the two swordsmen facing off against one another Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except yeah, now very, you have uh, a guitar solo playing over it. Right. <laughs> yeah, we could cut that. Someone could just cut that scene and put the solo over that, and I think we would get there. I think that would probably work, yep. yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, and it builds to the, the huge climax, and an earthquake squirting fire, bursting ground, and Satan screaming. Uh, and they even put that little, if you listen, there's a sound yep. in the background. <laughs> Which Satan again, screaming. there are no strangers to sound effects in the album, right. so that makes perfect sense. Yeah, uh, and then this is the bit that gives me. I mean, like, again, I love this whole track, but this is the bit that gives me goosebumps in this track is the final, uh, the final chorus. You know, and uh, the seer of visions can now rest in peace. There ain't no more demons and no more disease, uh, and the tyrant in de- is dead. He is gone, overthrown. You've given our souls back to light. Uh, and if you didn't know, Michael Kiska is, uh, in fact, all of Halloween were quite devoted Christians. Oh, for uh, sure. And if you didn't know that, or I mean, if you hadn't already got that from this song, yes, <laughs> they really Which is interesting really are. in that the band's name is Halloween. Uh, yeah. And there's some very Christian <laughs> overtones to a lot of their music. Uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting tidbit. Yeah. But clearly um, through the lyrics, you you are, are seeing that because there's direct mentions of Lucifer and all that kind of stuff. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The Satan being the tyrant and right. all that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, and I, as I say, the ending of this just gives me goosebumps and Ingo's going mental on the double bass drum and Kiska's wailing away and, uh, and then it goes, but you know, back to acoustic and a few little flourishes and stuff, but it feels like you've been on an epic journey. 
uh, in this track. More so, I think, for me, like I say, I do like Halloween. I really do love it. But this track is the one that, to me, feels, like you say, it delivers on the promise of the album cover. This is the one that makes me feel like I have just played an epic campaign of D&D. Well, but then you could take uh, uh, Initiation, Halloween, Invitation, and Keeper of the Seven Keys, put them together, and you would have a little over a 30-minute EP. And right. that could be... You, so, so basically, nowadays with modern technology, you could make that playlist for yourself, and that is basically the story of Keeper of the Seven Keys. Do you know, I might have to try that. And and, I, and it'd be interesting to see how that works together because, you, you know... Oh, don't forget, follow the sign. Oh, right, right, exactly, and follow the sign. Yeah. So again, you know, about a 30-minute album, which is not that far off from what some of the 80s albums were in terms of length, yep. and you yep. get that story, you get the beginning of the journey, you get all the pomp and circumstance, and then you get the final battle. And, and I think that in and of itself is more... It's more of a novella than a Lord of the Rings epic that we thought we were going to get when we started <laughs> right. these albums, but... Um, but I think it's enough because those two songs are so good, uh, and and I, it would be interesting to listen to them back to back as two thirteen minute epics and see how that all sort of works together. But uh, I'm going to have to try that now. But yeah, and since this is the song that sort of caps off the story, I'll just throw my my brief interlude about my my theory here. You know, we talked about how we're always looking for the the meaning of these songs and and a through line to all the story and stuff like that. And for me, as I was listening to it, I started to think about, you know, the seven keys, because clearly, as you and I have talked about offline, uh, the seven seals is probably what they're talking about, although those are very open to interpretation. Um, you they know, are, the, those yeah. are thought sometimes as as to be wax seals on scrolls that, you know, when they're when they're uh, sort of unbroken, they'll usher in the apocalypse and all that kind of stuff. You've got your Demi Moore seventh sign movie, um, which is really not worth going back and watching again. Um, but... I also was thinking about like the seven chakras and and whether or not that could be a theme that could be applied to these two albums together. And so I started to kind of chart like where what songs would fit with what chakras and stuff like that because you know there's references to the crown that you cannot see and there's a crown chakra that talks about spirit uh, spirituality, you know, refer- the, the third eye chakra being awareness and you've got songs like Twilight of the Gods and the, and tale that wasn't right in future world and eagle flies free there's a lot of themes in these songs about being true to yourself really seeing the world around you for what it is um you know following your passions following your your creativity um so i think when you look at you know the different chakras the the heart chakra on love and healing the solar plexus wisdom and power the root chakra of of basic trust and survival like you can almost chart many of the songs on these albums to one of the seven chakras. And I, and, and again, I haven't done enough of a delve into that to see how well they all work with that. But if you're looking to apply a different interpretation or a different meaning to these albums and maybe something that holds more of the songs together in an overall sort of arc, I think the chakras are an interesting thing to go and and sort of look at there. So I'm actually going to listen to a little bit more of that and jump into it because, uh, because I, you know, like we talked about, you're always trying to apply meaning and find connections and things like that. And so um, I read some interviews of these guys. And while there is certainly a very um, sort of Christian, you know, element to the band, there's also just kind of an overall spirituality. Like I, I had pulled yeah, an interview yeah. from um, uh, from Groskopf in 2015. He did an interview where he talked about 
Um, he said, you can always count on everybody, and that makes it pretty easy for Halloween to work. A higher force in a way. I don't see an old man with a beard, but there must be something where you get your energy from. I would call it like a higher force, a higher energy, or something. You kind of believe when there's nothing going on and when you feel down that there will be a time when you feel better, and somehow you get some strength to do the things that you want to do. And so there you have the bass player who's been there from the very beginning of the band who's talking about not necessarily God, but of a higher sort of spiritual power. So I do think there's room for um, sort of an alternative uh, spiritual look at these albums in terms of the songs having more linkages to one another. So it's just kind of an interesting thing to throw out there if you're if you're looking to find, um, you know, more connections between the songs. Yeah. Okay. Well, firstly, regarding the whole sort of, you know, just general spirituality thing, hold that thought um, <laughs> for the next track. Uh, but regarding the sort of theory about the chakras, I, I know very little about that aspect of um, of mysticism and spirituality, so I'm not going to talk at length about it. But I, I think that's an interesting idea. And if you do do any, I mean, I think it's probably safe to say that it wasn't intentional that they didn't right. have that in mind but that doesn't mean that you can't listen to the album with that in with that in mind sure and get something out of it um so if you do sort of you know get a bit further into that and come up with stuff i would be very interested in in seeing that yeah and like maybe listening to it with those ideas in mind yeah because yeah. i think that's quite interesting and much like you i am no expert on that whatsoever but uh but i do find that very interesting and so uh so i may delve into that a little bit more and i'll post stuff on the facebook page if i do that or uh or you know let people know where they can find it cool okay right so uh let's just quickly deal then with well first of all there's the sort of transplanted track which yes you're right was actually i'd completely forgotten but was originally uh track seven of keep apart two and it came uh so that would be after what is that after we got the right and before march of time but right. is now basically shifted to a sort of bonus track on the uh, modern version and that is save us <laughs> Which is a hard hitter. It really is, right. And one, now, this is, again, it's a Kai Hansen track. Again, it's dealing with nuclear death. Uh, <laughs> and again, it is very fast and thrashy. Um, Kiska is in fine form. It has a lovely driving beat. Uh, one of Ingo's best tracks, again, I think. You know, awesome drops. I love this track because it is so sort of fast and heavy. Uh, and the last 45 seconds of this track are just absolutely superb for me where uh after the final solo 
and then the crowd, like the ensemble is singing, save us. Yeah, this is the and, call and response part of the yeah, song. Yeah, save us from the gods of thunder, save us from the dogs of the war. The creeping save nightmares, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely, there is something about that that just gets me every time. I love it. And the way it leads up to him just shouting, save us now, and then bang, you know, in with the end. And here too, you know, when you look at those lyrics, I think that there's definitely Christian elements to those lyrics, but I also see just an overall spirituality, uh, you know, sort of element to those lyrics where they're talking about save us from our own ignorance, you know, uh, save us from hate. And there's a lyric that says, "We believe that the phenomena of nature. Right. We believe that this the phenomena of nature and the expression of infinitive intelligence. We express our belief that all forms of life are manifestations of the spirit. That's a pretty, and thus all men are children of God. Right. And that's that's where I where I said hold that thought because that I'm assuming that uh, especially because he says we. I'm assuming that even though Kai Hansen wrote these lyrics, that that's the sort of thing you'd probably clear with the rest you of the band You want to make first, sure everybody's on board with that vision, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. And like I say, they were all Christian, so they probably were. But, I mean, I am, I'm a fully paid up atheist. I am not a spiritual or Christian man at all. But I've always thought, if you are going to ask me to believe in some kind of God, then this philosophy is gonna is as close as I'm gonna get. Right. You know, this I could maybe get behind because what they're saying here is that yeah, well, literally, we believe the phenomena of nature are the expression of infinitive intelligence, not designed or necessarily even created, but the expression of infinitive intelligence. And that, you know, all forms of life are manifestations of this, and thus all men are and it's a way of saying all men are children of God without actually dogmatically adhering right. to strictly just the christian exactly like judeo-christian uh way of of um uh of picturing right. god which i think fits with uh with the snippet of the interview that i just read you know whatever your uh interpretation of quote-unquote god is that's sort of what they're kind of speaking to there so uh, so i do think they to me what i like about this is it's very welcoming you know what I mean? Like it, it right. it's a very open interpretation that's very welcoming as opposed to an interpretation that is saying whatever your particular view of religion, if it's not this one, it's wrong. It's a very exactly. sort of open-ended view of like um, – which I, which I think fits overall with their music and their lyrics and the themes that you – that we've talked about all throughout this entire episode today. They're – they feel like a very sort of inclusive and empowering – uh, band, you know what I mean? Yes. So, and, yes. and I like that about them. And I think that's where the whimsy comes in with some of the goofiness that they have, but it's, they're a fun and feel good band to listen to. And I appreciate that because it makes these albums even more, um, sort of repeatable. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, it, it, I couldn't agree more. I, I have exactly the same sort of feeling about the band and i've always appreciated that as far as i know they've never done anything to reject that notion right. they've always been very inclusive and sort of you know for tolerance and love and forgiveness and all that sort of thing right and you sort of see that even now as i mentioned i saw a recent live you know appearance of them and they still have that love from the fans they still have that sort of back and forth with their with their audience which is kind of awesome um yeah now the the placement of this track as we talk about the fact that in the remastered version it was put at track 10, I would have moved it back to track 7 because I think it would – I think at that point in time, you it would fit better in the flow of the album. And coming off of the epic to now come back to this, 
it, it makes an okay, it, it actually can make a great closing tune on many an album, but I think the 13 minute epic to me is the closing of this album. Oh, totally. Yeah. I agree. I agree completely. I, there is no way, no way that I would listen to this album and not have Keeper of the Seven Keys as the final track. Right. That to me is absolute madness. Right. So uh, interesting that in the remaster, they bumped this to 10. I don't yeah. really understand that, but, uh, but a great song. Yeah, very, very weird. Uh, but it is great, right. And the only other, um, if you buy the uh, sort of modern version of Keeper 2, you'll generally get a bunch of bonus tracks. Uh, and some of them are good and some of them are just average or whatever. But the other one that I want to talk about is Savage. <laughs> This is actually written by Michael Kiska. It is. Which, which is astounds me right, because, because it's it not his style. It is probably the heaviest thing that he ever recorded with them. And honestly, like, is in the running to be my favorite ever Halloween track. I mean, there is this track is so good, so fast and heavy, uh, and just and Kiska's performance in it is fantastic as well, obviously, that uh, it's just, it's amazing. Um, I mean, yeah, I, you know, I love the epic fantasy pomp and stuff, obviously, but just for, in terms of pure, I just want, I've got five minutes and I want to listen to Halloween. This is the track I will play every single time. I, I agree with all of that, which is why I think it doesn't have a place on this album. That's why I think it's a bonus track. You know what I mean? Like, I, right, like it, right. Because it doesn't fit with the rest of this album. I think it's an awesome metal oh, song. Totally. Well, it's it was originally a B-side. Exactly. And I, yeah. I think it truly feels like a B-side. It feels like a kick-ass B-side that these guys put together, um, which makes me think of uh, Def Leppard because some of – post-hysteria, some of Def Leppard's hardest songs – are B-sides that have never right. appeared on their albums. Uh, Ride Into the Sun, Ring of Fire, those are songs that are absolutely kick-ass songs, but were B-sides. And so it, it, I think it was smart not to include it in the original release of this album. It's a kick-ass song, but it just feels a little bit different than the rest of the stuff on this album. Right. Well, and I first heard it, uh, I think it is on the... Uh, it's on the additional stuff of the reissue of Walls of Jericho. Oh, okay. Um, which, so I don't think I actually heard it in the context of Keeper Part 2 originally. I think it was in the context of Walls of Jericho, um, which confused the hell out of me for a while. I didn't know <laughs> what, the, what the chronology of some of these tracks was at all. Uh, but I've always just, always loved this track. There is, yeah, it, it just, probably, I mean, it's probably one of the heaviest things that Halloween have ever recorded. I agree. Full stop. Yep. Um, and certainly the heaviest thing that Kiska ever recorded with them. And yeah, I just, I love it. Um, you know, this is, I mean, we talk about sort of playing people tracks to persuade them and things. If I was going to persuade people that Halloween can actually be a really fucking heavy band 
<laughs> this is the track yep. I would play them. You could certainly <laughs> throw them this this one, and uh, and they would be hard pressed to argue that. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, I don't think we need to. I mean, you know, in summary, I fucking love these albums. Uh, I know they're kind of off brand for me, as it were. But uh, you come at me. I don't care. No, they're uh, fucking <laughs> awesome. And my under my, I always do a section on my notes called general thoughts. And my first general thought was the best D and D soundtrack ever. Right. That was, <laughs> exactly. that was my takeaway. Um, you know, again, love both of these albums. I think the first album is stronger, but that's not, that's not taking anything away from the second album. They are both fantastic albums. They absolutely deserve their place in history. Uh, Halloween absolutely deserves to be thought of as one of the foundations of power metal. Um, and if you haven't dug into both of these albums, they're, they're so listenable that you can just loop that. Like the keeper part one has been in my car since you said we were going to talk about these albums. Like I have just been listening to it nonstop. These are albums that my kids listen to in the car with me. They're just super <laughs> listenable and fun albums to listen to. So yeah, definitely a lot of fun to, to dive deep into. Yeah, they really are. They really are. And I, I mean, I haven't done that now, but I did for a long time. Yeah. Do exactly that. Just keep, you know, I mean, this is back in the days when all we had was a few cassettes and a Walkman. So we kind of had to listen to the same albums over and over again if we were out and about because we couldn't carry, uh, you know, a million albums with us. But I did that uh, many, many times. I That's why I say I genuinely have not got a clue how many times I've listened to these albums because they were just in my Walkman and I did not leave the house without my Walkman. And so... There was a period of time where I was just listening to these albums over and over and over again. Um, and I would put these guys into the category of uh, when I think of like Dio. One of the things that I love about Dio right. and, and I would can just put in any of his albums and, and listen to and just kind of get lost in it is that these these albums and these bands that just con that just fire up your imagination. Like these are great, yes. creatively inspiring albums, whether you're writing and whether you're writing fantasy or not, it doesn't matter. Um, when you're, when you need to create and you need that music to kind of keep you in that creative headspace, like these two albums are absolutely perfect for that. And, and, you know, much like Dio is a, if I need some creative inspiration, um, it just gets my imagination firing and, and these guys do that as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, this is. I am fairly confident in predicting this is going to be our longest episode ever. So hello, everybody, on Halloween. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Hope There's a Halloween hope, trick and a treat for you. Yeah, hope you're having uh, a, a good day, good evening. Maybe you're listening to this as you're walking your kids around. Yeah, pop in one earbud, keep the other one out so you can listen for the kids, but let us, let us cool. accompany you on your, on your trick-or-treating. Yeah, because uh, I think the final... I'm going to predict now the final edit of this is going to be close to three hours. Um which I'm pretty sure is our longest episode ever. Fantastic. So let us not waste any more of our listeners' valuable time and uh, let us figure out what we're going to do next. So before we get onto the homework, let me just say, as always, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, if you enjoy the show, please do spread the word. Rate us on iTunes, because that really does help. Uh, and, of course, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out if you want to get in touch go to thrash it out podcast.com for links to email and our twitter accounts and of course you can join the facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out so homework after that epic 
D&D prog journey. <laughs> Brian, what are we going to talk about next episode? Well, I don't think we're going to leave D&D land anytime soon, um, but oh. we are going to jump into 2016. This is a band that I am very late to the party on, but I recently saw them live and I have really enjoyed their latest album. And so we're going to talk about Amana Marth's Yams Viking, which came out oh. in March of 2016. I know that on the Facebook page, we have at least listened to the first song together, First Kill. Uh, and people seem to dig it. I know there's probably a bunch of Amonomarth fans among our listenership, but this is a band that I was really never into. I was blown away by the album that they put out this year, and I started to dig a little bit into their back catalog, and I saw them live with Suicidal and Megadeth and Metal Church, and they were freaking fantastic. And so that kind of solidified for me the fact that I wanted to... Uh, I can always go 80s, but since we just went 80s, I decided to jump you know, back to this time. And this is one of the better albums of 2016, I think. So I'm, I'm excited to dive into it, even though I'm no expert on Amon Amarth. Wow, excellent. I didn't realize that you'd send them live. That's fantastic. I did actually get this album after, because yeah, that first track was so good. Uh, and people spoke of them so highly on the Facebook group. I'd heard of them, but knew almost nothing about them. So I did actually get this album on the strength of that first track. Uh, and I have listened to it a couple of times, but I will now listen to it many more times. Well, and the cool <laughs> thing is, is when I took my son, who's 10, to see the show a couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife's side of the family is very Swedish. And so they, you know, when, ah. when my son goes to visit his grandparents, like they, when they, you know, do a toast, they say skull around the table and stuff like that. And so when he was watching Amon Amarth, who of course are from Sweden, uh, they have a song called Raise Your Horns, which is basically a toast song. And as they were singing that, like he, that was his favorite band of the whole night because of the the Swedish, you know, influence and stuff like that. And so their, their stage set is a giant ship and they they have uh, an element of pageantry to them, and it uh, it was a lot of fun to see them live. So I'm looking forward to jumping into this album for sure. Awesome, yeah. Okay, all right. So I'm on a Marth Viking. Uh, we will see you in the next episode. Rock out. Take care. <laughs>